Hello, beautiful people, wherever in time, space, or on the globe you are. My name is Sam, and I'm one of your co-hosts for the Celluloid Pudding Podcast. And I'm here with my beautiful, wonderful, erudite, and extremely knowledgeable and bodacious co-host, Beth. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're chuffed here. tonight because, hey, Beth, uh, we, have a, we have a great, great guest with us. And, and this guest is Michael Hardy. He is a writer and editor extraordinaire and also a, a movie aficionado and a blues expert. Is that about right, Michael? I will take the expert down a notch, but uh, otherwise, sure. We'll take it. We'll take a sure. <laughs> a blues of a, a blues of file. Blues of file. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, for real. Um, I just want to say Michael Hardy. Michael okay. Hardy. Oh. I had to get it out of me. Okay. Right. Now, now that day has passed. Michael, I'm curious. We wanted to have you on for a very long time because we know you're a, a great cinephile movie buff, just like we are, probably better than we are. And of all the movies you could have chosen, you chose Crossroads from 1986. Why that particular film? It's been a favorite for a long time. I go back to it a couple of times a year, probably uh, for the past I don't know when I first saw it, but it was probably close to when it was released in the 80s, 1986. And what put it into my mind most recently, and this was just before Sam asked me about joining the podcast for a, for an episode, Ralph Macchio has written a um, semi-memoir called Waxing On, which is mostly about the Karate Kid movies Ooh. and the current show Cobra Kai. But he does talk about Crossroads uh, and a handful of passages, uh, mostly in passing, but it reminded me that it's about time to pull it out and watch it again. And the more I thought about it, the more I think it's it's a good choice. So I uh, boldly proposed it, and here we are. I'm so glad you did because it was it was really in a back file somewhere. I hadn't seen it since the 80s either. I remembered very little about it, and it was a breath of fresh air after all these extreme, dramatic, you know, heavily edited films that I've been looking at lately to get that yes. that freshness of going back to Crossroads. It made me want to quit my job, <laughs> <laughs> pack up everything I own, <laughs> or, but, you know, whatever, scant, whatever scant belongings I needed to take with me and just yeah. go down the Mississippi Blues Trail. That's mm. what it made me want to do. Just yeah. forget the world and all my responsibilities and yeah. go do this. Hobo just, down uh, highway Hobe, 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 Hobo down Highway six is it sixty one in search of blues legends. That's what it made me want to do. I gave it short shrift when it hmm. came out. Same. Movie theaters. I, why is that? And I know it's huge. Why is it huge, Michael? Well, I want to hear why Beth gave it short shrift. Ralph Macchio. <laughs> I immediately <laughs> gave it short shrift because of Ralph Macchio. Here's two feathers. And and the my only exposure to any kind of trailer or promo was the music video that went with the movie. And and that was it. I didn't know anything about the movie except for in in the music video, I forget what song was going to but I can't remember now. I can't. I don't you know. You know how they release this song and it's usually to put on the soundtrack, but it may not even appear in the movie. Possibly. Yeah. 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 Uh, they did that with Dragnet, you know, the Tom Hanks and, and Dan Aykroyd thing. <laughs> that was over the end credits in Dragnet, though. Oh, oh, was it? Okay. So I forgot about that. But uh, when I told people, you know, various people we were doing Crossroads, Michael, they got very excited, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing Crossroads. And I didn't realize <laughs> people were so enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't either. That's great. I assume it's mostly forgotten, but uh, I'm glad if it's not. I mean, oh, I don't think it is. Uh-huh. I was uh, looking at clips on YouTube. There's a, first of all, there's a whole bunch of clips from the film on YouTube, and there's a whole bunch of comments 
about the different clips. And it does. It has, it's definitely looks like it has a cult following. Yeah. And it's under, after seeing the film and for the first time this time, I, I can see why easily. I, I have this vague awareness in the eighties of Ry Cooter doing a lot of scoring. And, and so I was excited when I saw that Ry Cooter was, was in on this in a, in a very big way. I think he did Paris, Texas, and I was obsessed with that film for some <laughs> reason that escapes me now. But you know how it was in the eighties. He just sort of latched onto things. So his playing is fantastic. I did not know Steve. Will you help me, Michael? Is it, is it Vi or Vai? I've heard. I've always, I always, I think it's Vi. Okay. I always, I think Vi when I look at it. I, I do too, but then I heard one little documentary on YouTube and they said Vai and I thought, oh, it's got syllables. <laughs> okay. I'm only aware of one syllable, but we'll go with that. Okay. How should we begin? A little backstory. It's a Walter <laughs> I Hill film. No. Actually, I would love to know a little bit more about uh, Michael's affiliation with blues music. And are you not only are you uh, an enthusiast, but do you play also, Michael? Well, I can strum a guitar, but I, I'm my brother is the musician in the family. But to be honest, uh, the blues itself is not something I've ever like been obsessive about. I'm a, I'm a very eclectic music listener. I, I listen to a lot of different things, a lot of different styles. And I do enjoy the blues, but it's not like I've made a um, an avocation out of out of learning a whole lot about it. I got into it around in the 80s. I was listening to a lot of different uh, heavier guitar oriented music, and uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan became well known in that time. My brother was actually the first one of us to to get into him. He had all his records, and I I heard them and and began to really get a, a good idea of what he was doing, and it was um, it was really interesting stuff. I've been listening to him again just recently, after as I've been putting a lot of thinking into the blues and the history of it. But in terms of the the Delta blues, uh, the Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and uh, and people like that, we're all used to well produced stereo music with uh, a lot of you know studio polish and the mississippi delta blues the original recordings anyway are not that you really have to kind of retrain your expectations as to what it means to listen to recorded music and yes it it takes a certain mindset to to be able to sit down and and really dig into it but on those occasions when i do it's a it's a very rich mind of you know it's history it's culture there's a lot of authentic Jim Crow era experience in in the music from the 20s and 30s, and even if it doesn't come across directly articulated in the words, it's it's there in the feel. And I mean, that's what a large part of what the blues is. You really have to kind of be in a certain, or I do anyway, in a certain mood and a certain um, type of interest to uh, to delve into it at any length. But when you do, it's really rewarding. It is. I, I was surprised. Sam and I. Sorry, go ahead, Beth. Good. I was no, just, I was just say- saying you and I. <laughs> Go ahead. You say I, what you're going to say, and then I'll say. I, I, I was going to say something, you know, adjacent to that, which is uh, this film came out in 1986. It's a Walter Hill film, and uh, I, I knew him from Streets of Fire, which is one of my. I'm, I'm part of that cult. I love that mm-hmm. film. And um, what I found very refreshing was the way that they were very self-aware in this film of all of those issues, um, race relations, and so forth in in Mississippi presented in in a different way than than we're used to hearing today you don't think of the 80s as being very self-aware do you no it was very self-aware i mean the the character willie 
it yeah. tells them you're just another white kid that's going to come in here and rip off our music. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. just calls them right on it. Yeah. So yeah. There, we had a, there was a consciousness and awareness of it um, that we didn't even acknowledge, I think. Yeah. At least I didn't acknowledge it because I didn't even watch the film. But I, I was really appreciative of those moments, Sam, in the film that were just sort of very aware. Yeah, and and when he walks oh. away, we'll 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 come back. We're sometimes nonlinear, Michael, but you know that they're at Lou's or Lloyd's, whatever his name is, that awful man. And, Lloyd. Uh, yes, and the uh, motel man who makes an awful racist remark. And the <laughs> Ralph Macchio character says, "I I didn't realize these things still went on." And I think a lot of us didn't realize that, right? Living in a little bubble of harmony with everyone. I, yeah. I actually had that experience uh, when I lived in Tallahassee for two years and was working at the hospital. I, I witnessed something very similar to that, where someone made a, not an overtly racist remark, but yeah. the undertone of a joke was racist. And an elderly black man was walking in there, someone who was white, and I'm white, says, oh, I'm sorry, sir, you can't come on this elevator. And now this is an elderly black man. And he just kind of bowed his head and said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Me? He walked off. No, I'm not kidding. This actually Jesus. happened. Yeah. Um, I wish you could go back. Because, oh, no. So I'm sorry. So I was just and... joking. And he, mm. he asked him to come back on. And but I knew that. that what a fucking that was, awful. That's not yeah. a joke. No, 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 no. No, no I, 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 I no, it's not. No, no. I, I think my jaw was on the floor of the elevator. <laughs> but us coming from a completely more culturally a different experience, Sam. When this movie came out and throughout the 80s, I lived in, in Pensacola, Florida. And you might you may or may not remember, but in uh, 1981, as recently as 1981, a black man was lynched in Mobile, Alabama by the Klan. This was actually the, the incident, the event that led to the founding of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Morris Dees uh, sued the Klan and, and actually bankrupted them. But, you know, as recently as 1981, people were just being, and, and I'm sure it's happened, it happens today. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, and I think that in, in acknowledging, uh, because the South is, the South is really a mixed bag. I, I grew up in Pensacola. I worked in Mobile, Alabama for 10 years after college. And in my circles, racism was minimal. I mean, my workplace was multiracial, the neighborhood I, grew, I lived in was multiracial and nobody had any any problems over it but just you know a few miles away things things were going on and probably even closer to me than I knew and so I think the movie and acknowledging that in a very overt way because you know we have a, a black man and a young white kid and for a period of time a white girl all traveling together yeah. and mm -hmm. sometimes they get trouble over it and sometimes they don't and that was reminiscent of my actual lived experience sometimes it's a problem sometimes it's not it depends on where you are and who you're uh, who you're dealing with so true. there's a even uh, uh when they when they start hoboing uh, I, th I think that willie says that to eugene he's like you're in mississippi now yeah. <laughs> and you're on the road this isn't new york city this is a completely different exactly cultural yeah. existence down here yes and you know and in our, our recent history it's resurged again and I, I think that maybe that's another reason this movie feels relevant is because these things have never gone away at least there's an awareness now and i, I and i i know that this is a coming of age i i don't know i kind of place this in the genre of coming of age films right uh right of passage that sort of thing mm -hmm. but, and and buddy film too and a buddy there's film the but also the, the mentor film. film 
Which got him into trouble, I suppose, Walter Hill. Yeah. Like, oh, Karate Kid's coming out, and I'm doing this mentor film. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, we, we can talk about it when we get into the actual plot, but I, I think there's some very significant differences between the two. Yeah, Sam, did you want to go over the sort of the principles behind the film? Sure. And um, then we can get into the... Sure. It was directed by Walter Hill, and I, I did see an interview with him. And he was kind of bitchy during the interview. <laughs> but the reporter started out by saying, were you a little wary of doing another mentor it's kid film man. after the complete failure of Streets of Fire? So that's not the best way to get your your guest into a good mood. And, no. And he was he was a little, he, you could tell he just wanted to flee the scene. But he did mention during this interview that when the reporter asked if he had considered a different actor other than Ralph Macchio, say somebody who actually played the guitar. He said, absolutely not. He wanted an actor and he always, always had Ralph Macchio in mind for that piece, for that, for that role. And and I thought that was very interesting because I, I kind of viewed him back in the day as, yeah, another cute delayed puberty kind of, you know, kid, <laughs> just nothing that special, but you know what? I see why he's special revisiting this film crossroads. So we've got a Walter Hill film. We also did the fantastic Streets of Fire. And I believe the script was – who did the script? That was John, John Cusco. Cusco. And he did it as part of his master's thesis. That's quite a master's thesis. It was based on his actual experience playing on the blue circuit. That's a great story. Share share that with us because yeah. I, I, I think I'm familiar with it. He was playing, and then his girlfriend called him, right, and said, oh, we, ju- we just got a, an old guy that was admitted – to our facility because she was in in nursing care or something. Is that the story? Help me, Michael. (laughs) Uh, That's as much as as I know off the top of my head, too. So he had that experience expanded upon it. And I don't know how it got into Walter Hill's hands, but he had a lot of directorial license picking who he wanted. And I'm so glad he got Ry Cooter and, and Steve Vai, I'm going to say. I did hear something about the cutting head sequence, which we'll get into, folks, a little bit later because it is the grand finale of the film. But I did read that originally Ry Cooter was supposed to to be in that part, the Steve Vai part. But, but Walter Hill felt it needed a more contemporary feel to it with the kind of shredding guitar that goes on with him. There's the also some talk. Of, there's also some talk, I believe, about getting Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, oh, wow. But, uh, and I think Ry Cooter actually disagreed with casting Steve Vai, although I also believe he was wrong, which we can get into Ooh, as we go. I'm in the opposite camp, so let's let's put the gloves on. Wait, <laughs> which camp are you in, Sam? I'm in the Ry Cooter camp, should have played... Uh, that should have been Steve, ca- Jack Butler. Uh, uh, Jack, Jack Butler, and and Michael, you're in the... I think, Steve, I, I think a shredder was the right choice, but we need to unpack the film a bit more before we really get into that. Yeah. Okay, so, cool. So how, what, in a nutshell, my, Michael... What is this film? And then we'll get into the particulars. The Columbia this Pitch. Is, <laughs> this is essentially a, a young guitarist who is studying classical guitar at Juilliard, who really wants to play the blues, has a very strong interest in it and an aptitude for it, and his um, he's not getting any uh, any support uh, at Juilliard. And meantime, he has somehow become aware that in a nursing home nearby where which is sort of a prison nursing home. A man is, has been living there who he believes is Willie Brown, the former sideman of Robert Johnson, who a uh, legend has it sold his soul to the devil in exchange for fame and fortune. Mm. Well, fame anyway, he didn't make a whole lot of fortune. 
And he tries to convince Willie Brown to teach him the mythical lost song, number the number 30 song of after Robert had only recorded 29. And Willie denies he is Willie for a, a little while, but then he uh, confesses he is and has Eugene break him out so they can go down south to Mississippi to uh, conduct some, some business, which turns out to be trying to get his own soul back from the devil. That is the shorthand. There's a lot to it. <laughs> there, there, there is a is lot, a but lot that's a pretty it. concise. Yeah. That's, it a, that's, that's good. Nice. That's good. That's the, ele- that's the elevator pitch. I'll take it. You hooked me. We're going to green light it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna make a movie out of that. Do you know? I didn't realize that was a, like a prison hospital or, or whatever high security hospital until I read about it. it. It didn't come through in the first viewing for me that that was a special facility. Well, that's why he had to be. That's why he had to be broken out. And my uh, Eugene later referred to them as fugitives. I, I didn't catch it until the, the probably the last quarter of the film when he had mentioned fugitives, and I'm like, okay. oh yeah, I guess he. And then I it. When he said fugitives, I went back to the bus ride where he's yeah. telling him, yeah, I killed a man. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. Eugene's learning experience as he uh, evolves from book knowledge to life experience knowledge, I think, is a, a really strong element in the story. It is a coming-of-age story to an extent. It is definitely a mentor story to an extent. But it, like like good blues music, it uh, it takes several different elements and and mixes them together in a, in a very uh, effective way. It becomes more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I I agree, and I I thought it was acted in such. I mean, it it, it, not, it seems refreshing now, but it just was in 1986. Um, yeah, the kids hook up and have sex. Yeah, there's a an older black man and a younger white kid. Yeah, they're black cops. And, and there's a lot of subtext uh, in a particular scene where Willie Brown says, well, things have not changed at all since way back in the day, but and yet they have. <laughs> it, it wasn't preachy and yet hit the point home really hard for me. I like that quality about it, that yeah. it wasn't preachy. But I, I think you have – when I said it was different from The Karate Kid, this is something we, we can get into now or we can wait a little while, but – uh, this movie came out the same year as Karate Kid 2. So Ralph Macchio had last been seen as Daniel LaRusso getting beat up by uh, bullies and trained by Mr. Miyagi. And as you mentioned, Walter Hill here is saddled with another mentor-protege kind of film. But if you look at the the, the relationships, in The Karate Kid, Daniel is completely... A dweeb, basically. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he has moved for across the country, been moved across the country. He hates being in California. He's getting beat up every day. He's trying to teach himself some self-defense. He, he's a skinny, wiry, quintessential 90-pound weeping. And so, you know, Mr. Miyagi is there working as the uh, caretaker or the maintenance man at their apartment. And he sees this and just decides that he's going to try to help out and teach something that he knows. And we later find out that he was married, he had a son who died, and so he is taking on this student as sort of a, it becomes sort of a quasi-father-son relationship. When we move on to Crossroads, Willie is a manipulator. He wants to be broken out. He needs help getting out of where he is, and he, you know, is this guy even really Willie Brown? We're not sure. He eventually does sort of what he promised to, but not exactly. And he gets what he wants from Eugene. And Eugene is pampered and spoiled and to the point where just having to hitchhike is 
uh, a terrible, terrible hardship for us. I'm sorry your life turned out so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he, he needed this journey so much, didn't he? Yeah. Times yeah, are real did. hard for you, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> in in the golden toy. ghetto. I love that phrase. Golden ghetto. golden ghetto. Yeah. I think that the, the, the similarities between Crossroads and Karate Kid are, are fairly superficial. And I, I will happily admit I love Karate Kid. I'm a fan of all, all of those movies. I'm a fan of Cobra Kai. But this is a very different kind of movie. And despite any surface similarities, there are a lot of, there's a lot more depth, I think, in, in Crossroads. The relationships are more complex, the stakes are higher, and the plot, it covers more ground, it takes people farther away from their comfort zones by a long shot, and as as good as the Karate Kid films are, it, they're just not the same kind of movie, uh, even if they superficially look like they might be. You're right, Michael. There are layers and layers. If you did the elevator pitch again and, and you said, OK, and there's going to be a love interest and then there's going to be a, a duel at the end. I mean, yeah, we, we can talk about those major plot points, but these characters, it is a character study. And they are so good, Joe Seneca and Ralph Macchio, and also what's her name, Beth, the um, Jamie Gertz. Jamie Gertz. Jamie she was also in Lost Boys. Oh yeah. Uh, I, mean, I, you know, it's funny. She's like a I, female Ralph Macchio to me. Yeah. No, I think she's much more, a little better than that. No, um, I mean the way she speaks, the, her, you know, the, yeah. the New York thing going on. Yeah. She kind of stole the the film for me though. There's the interaction between she and Joe Seneca. Their acting together, yeah. I think, was really what sold the movie. It yeah. made me really love the movie so much, especially the well, we won't spoil the plot, yeah. what happens at the end, but what, it was great uh, chemistry. And one other aspect too that, that Linda just reminded me of: the place itself becomes a character. Um, in a Karate Kid, you know, Reseda, California, there's a little bit of right side of the tracks, wrong side of the tracks dynamic going on, but it's, it's fairly. It's fairly minor. I mean, he, he's basically around home. Whereas in Crossroads, he travels away from familiarity into a, what's really an alien landscape for him. And the Delta, the Mississippi Delta becomes as much a character in the film as, as any of the people. Absolutely. You, you, he has a journey to make. And, and I think that Willie teaches this character, <laughs> Eugene. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I just looked at. I should never have the movie playing on in the background because I I can't Don't do that walk to and chew gum. It's gonna mess you up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he teaches him those life lessons that you need to play deep blues. You can be technically brilliant, right? He could play that. Uh, what was it? It's Mozart. It's Mozart in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. But you can't fake depth. Hard. Right. Exactly. The mileage. He calls it the mileage. Yeah. yeah. And I do like that he had to work for it. He had to get his job as a janitor to get closer to Willie Brown, and he makes him work for it. And and <laughs> I, I love that he bought. He points out. Willie points out. Oh, you think you bought this guitar probably because it looks all beat up and cool, like you know it's been used on the yeah. road. You have no idea. What's, yeah. what's but, the but Muddy Waters invented electricity. Uh, that's one of those lines that carries, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really does. I've been listening to them all day it's long. Line. <laughs> the other one would be Greenville and Pussy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just laugh every time I hear that line. It just cracks me up. You know what this movie reminded me of, though? Uh, just given when it was released. It reminded me of us and some of our friends. There's a lot of Gen X uh, aesthetic and sensibility in this. 
and Eugene is, even though he's, he's sort of like the poor little rich boy. And we know he has money because, you know, his mother's vacationing in Europe. His father's gone. He's basically by himself. And the watch, the watch is what gets him the up, uppage in wattage. Yeah. <laughs> what did they call that little lamp? The pig nose? Now that was pig cool. Nose. I did not realize yeah. that existed. I went on Amazon looking for that. <laughs> did, did you? <laughs> I want a pig nose amp. For what reason, I don't know. (laughs) Ooh, who is that? I want to try to learn the uh, feeling bad blues. Is that what it's called? Where Francis has just left him and he's he's working on that slow slide. Yeah. He feels something for the first time, I think. He feels it Mm. in his music. That's when he's playing with heart for the very first time, I think. Mm. And, you know, Francis could have been a very shallow, shallow part. Without Jamie Gertz's expertise going into that, you know, the tough. I talking. just thought she did a really nice job for yeah. being. And I, I felt differently toward Ralph Macchio after seeing the film. I did. Yeah. I was like, oh, I give you short shrift. Yeah. <laughs> Death with the short shrift. But it's the hair yeah. that, that made you suspicious, isn't it? It's probably his best role. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of anything else he's been in yeah. other than the recent um, series, Cobra Kai. And my cousin Vinny. Oh, oh God, yeah. 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 Duh. So, he, he was in the, he was in the Outsiders too before Karate Kid. He was very good in the Outsiders. You know, I'm not, I've only that read that. I've never seen that, and I need to see that. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to do that. That's an excellent yeah. film, and he was excellent in it. Do we want to go through the the plot? Let's do it. Yes. Let's we've been talking. We've been talking about yes. various. Let's get various to the barbecue. Points out of context. <laughs> so me home. We open in sepia tone. This is uh, Robert Johnson coming in for a recording session. These recording sessions were were in Dallas, actually, in the 19, I think, 1936 or so. Yeah. And he recorded his 29 songs. And uh, he's played here by Tim Russ, who... Some Tuvok. Of you, Tuvok from Voyager and many other roles. Wait, but that's Tuvok? That is Tuvok. Yeah. That is okay. Tuvok before he was Tuvok, but yes. Okay. I, I about fell out when I read that. I oh went, my oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> and then uh, so he, he records. And I think I'm not sure what the recording medium is. I think it may be when they were still actually imprinting the sound waves into wax. Oh, because wow. okay. they have that shot where there's like a stylus and things that something that kind of spirals up. I think that may be the stylus digging the wax out of the blank. I'm guessing. I do not know for sure. But I do know that that was a technology that was still pretty widely used in that era. Why do you think he's faced toward the corner like that? He needs to feel alone while he's doing the blues? Legend has it he would turn around. Yeah. Right, Michael? Yeah, he. Uh, whether it was shyness or just needing to focus mm. for whatever reason, that was how, at least how he recorded. Now, he, he did a... Uh, a lot of performance. I'm sure he didn't do it with respect to the audience, but yeah. in recording, you know, it's gonna it's gonna go down in a, in a permanent medium. You want to be your best, so you put your maximum focus into it, I guess. Uh-huh. Then we segue into uh, Eugene at school, yeah. playing his uh, Mozart when finishing it with a blues flourish, and I think this is what you were about to mention. Well, he goes in for a consult with his with his professor and mentor, right. and the mentor very, very presciently says, "You you can't serve, don't serve two masters. It never works out." So he could have been the the hard ass, you know, you can't play blues. It's not real music, but he does refer to it as primitive music. And he says excellence in primitive music is cultural. Yes, it is cultural, and 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 that's 
tipping toward appropriation without saying it. He, he was saying cultural appropriation without actually using those words. So, so I was kind of blown away by that. But that's like saying Ray Cooter could never exist. Or Stevie Ray Vaughan. Or that Bonnie Raitt could never uh, be a good slide guitar player. Or Yeah. But I wonder what Robert Johnson would think about being known as, is it the grandfather uh, or great-grandfather of rock and roll? Would he have liked that title? It, it draws from multiple sources, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with incorporating multiple styles. You know, I, I, I think that Steve Ray Vaughan is as legitimate a, a blues player as B.B. King. And I think this film brings some of that out because we start with some of some notes like that uh, from the instructor, Alan Arbus, from Willie Brown himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as we move through, you know, Lightning Boy Martone picks up some mileage. And uh, by the end, I don't think Willie would uh, dispute that he has <laughs> you have the right to sing the blues yeah. or play them in this case. Yeah. I, I think it's he a- gave him his consent when he first plays that feel bad blues after Francis. Yes. What's, he gives him the what's nod the, like, of appreciation. What's the line, Michael, of the blues are nothing but a good man? Yeah. Feeling bad, thinking about the Feeling woman he bad. wants to live. Yeah. And then he goes in that nice monologue about so many towns, so many women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that is a, a beautifully acted scene. Well, we'll get to that. But <laughs> we can just be dismissive. <laughs> So no, no, because we're so, still way back on way back in Juilliard, and I, I just yeah. want to make sure that we. Were, yeah. So he he leaves he leaves that conference with his professor, who who you might remember from Mash, by the way, that's Dr. Sidney Friedman. No way! Oh my God, good eye. Alan Arbus. Really? Yeah, Linda recognized him. Linda recognizes people by face. Then I tell her what their names are. Oh, that's so. that's very symbiotic. I like. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. But uh, but that's but so then he goes back to his room and he's he's playing his uh, his blues guitar. He practices classical for a little while. Then he picks up another guitar that he's got tuned differently and uh, and plays some blues. And we do see a bit of his homework, all of the books he's read on the blues. And he even goes to the mm-hmm. library and looks at microfiche kids. Microfiche. Yes. Back, back in the Stone Age. Yeah. Still exists, by the way. Yeah, it does. That's good to know. Yeah, it does. Then we move into him trying to uh, meet Willie Brown and uh, at the incarceration nursing home i didn't know that such a thing is that a real thing it's called the eastwick security i wrote it down because i stopped the eastwick security nursing home okay in harlem i I I understand because they do say something about that later yeah so willie is first uh does not admit that he is the willie brown man jamash you he named willie brown lots of willie browns in the world (laughs) got seven cousins willie brown (laughs) just yeah it's great lines what makes him uh finally confess that I think there are two things. I, uh, obviously, Eugene can't have access to Willie until he decides he sees a little posting there that they need a janitor and to inquire within and that sort of thing. So he does take a post there at the hospital as a janitor and makes himself you know, available to Willie Brown as, as much as possible. But he does bring in his guitar one day mm-hmm. and, and plays a bit of blues. Got Willie's attention. Yeah, but it was the picture, that I think, that finally uh, broke oh, yeah. him. He kept denying that he was who he was. I think I read somewhere that it wasn't till just prior to that that we had any Robert Johnson footage. You know, the ten cent photo with him holding his guitar up, cigarette in mouth. You're right, Sam. Uh, I was seeing, I think, watching a video on YouTube, and they had said that actually, when this film was released, they didn't have any photos existing. And then I think an issue of Rolling Stone shortly afterward had photos of him from uh, one of his descendants. Yeah, I think the photo, that's kind of undeniable. I mean, Willie is seeing himself 
you know, 40, 50 years before in that picture. And then you can just tell by the look on his face that he knows that it's uh, what it is, who it is. And he's having his own flashbacks of yeah. when he sold his soul to the devil. Those are creepy mm-hmm. as fuck. And, and I've seen all the tricks, obviously, the CGI and all the everything, all the bells and whistles we can now use in cinema. And I thought they did a wonderful job with the special <laughs> effects. Yeah, it, it's it's and it's it's mostly I think the acting is what sells it. It's yeah. the special effects add some nice visuals, but without Joe Morton there as, as his assistant and Willie Brown himself, uh, the young the actor playing the young Willie Brown was good. I don't know what his name is, but uh, he was really good. I love both those actors. Robert Judd only made two movies. He was primarily a stage actor. And fun fact. And I say fun, ironically, he actually died of stomach cancer between making this movie and when it was released. Ah. So I don't know if he ever got to see the final product, but it's a shame because he is absolutely hands down my favorite cinematic devil figure. Uh, yeah, seriously. And I, I've seen them all. Devil. I have a fetish. I love devil movies. <laughs> Devils Jeff. and nuns clashing. I'm in. He doesn't play it over the top like Robert De Niro did. He oh, doesn't God. play it cartoonishly. He's just uh, quietly menacing. So now we have Willie ask Eugene, get me out of here. Get me down to my piece of land in, what was it, Yazoo City, Mississippi? Yeah. Against all his better judgment, uh, Eugene decides to go along with it. He does. He get, he yeah. kind of he kind of chickens out, but then Willie, call, Willie calls him chicken. Yeah. And he um, promised to teach him that number 30 song, too. That was that was a big carrot. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a jailbreak in a taxi cab before, though. I, I don't know that I have. That's pretty sad. <laughs> you don't have a car. You're not a man if you don't have a car. I do love some of the uh, the things that are pointed out in this film. Here's mm. your shorthand life lessons for you no. Gen Xers who are more sheltered than you realize. That's what it felt like to me. Like, yeah. You need a car. You need your independence. You need mm-hmm. some experience. You can't expect to have the world handed to you on a platter whatever you're going after the whole sensibility of the film really felt gen x-y to me and i liked it i i agree i i think eugene is terribly pampered and privileged and uh he really grows by choosing to to leave that because he he does choose wait 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 hold up hold up yes he's privileged i don't know about pampered he's a true prodigy they say at the beginning of the film and he lives for music and takes the deep, deep dive and takes it upon himself to leave what he was born into. So he's got some grit to him. And, yeah. And oh, yeah. no, he definitely does. I mean, there, there is a sad part to his story. Just yeah. there is that loneliness that it, there is that um, fend for yourself, <laughs> <laughs> which which is not a, a happy place to be in a lonely right. existence. Um, yeah, right. surrounded by love and fam, that sense of family. It's right. Here's your key, you know. Yeah, it's not. It's not a great way to grow up. No, it isn't. I My, it. It's not abusive, but it is a form of emotional neglect. Believe right. it or not. Right. Oh, all right. I'm not gonna go into that one. But I- you were just saying, hey, he didn't have it easy, and I am agreeing with you. <laughs> oh, I forgot that I said that. <laughs> We're not going to get into a fight, one of our epic fights. I'm just not going to. I'm just saying I could relate to the latchkey part of that, and I think I turned out fine. <laughs> Others yeah. might disagree. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I will retract pampered. But he, he does come from a family with the means to pay for him to go to Juilliard. He's got an eleven hundred dollar oh, yeah. watch too. Yeah. Oh, and they were deciding what instrument he was going to play. I, right. I, mean, I would not want to 
grow up like that. I just wouldn't. Yeah. And he does say that with some vitriol when, he, mm-hmm. when he's confessing he to Francis. Yes, yes. They tread lightly, lightly on Francis's issues. But I don't think there's any doubt. Do you guys think there's any when, you know, hitting on me is not physical, like beating on me, hitting on me is he's. And I do think that that it was just kind of cleaned up a little bit because we probably know that. No, he probably would have been actually more sexually aggressive. That's the reality. Right. It's pretty clean. I think it might be rated PG or something. I believe it is. And yet. So. So everything remains focused on the music, the guitar, the journey. And the journey, yes, yes. So the journey begins uh, in that taxi cab, and then in a bus station. Eugene is pretty wise, and he, he catches on maybe by Tennessee that that Willie is not going <laughs> to empty up and, and pay for anything. <laughs> no, when they get to Memphis, that's when he dis- discovers his big money roll is forty dollars. Help me with the bus route. So they took a bus from New York City to Memphis. Memphis. Yeah, and then they, they were going to Memphis. Memphis, I think, to go to Vicksburg. And that's okay. when they discovered they didn't have enough money to uh, get the rest of the way in the bus. Is that the Blues Trail that um, that is? Yeah, that, about? that's when they end up uh, hoboing on Highway 61, right? Because that's a that's actually a, a trail you can you know drive. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I want to do it. Oh, I did so bad let's, after let's this. Let's do it. Yes. Yeah. I went down so many holes with this film. Yeah. Cigar box uh, guitars being one. Like days and days immersed in cigar box videos, uh, guitar videos. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they had to, they start hitchhiking, right, and hoboing. And then there's a torrential downpour and they find a vacant house at some point or an abandoned house. And there they find the third party of their, their little trio, Francis. Right? Be, mm-hmm. Before we get to Francis, do we want to talk about the, the conversation the two of them have on the bus together before they Yes, sure. He's unburdening his soul, I guess. Willie is. Yeah. So this is this is where there is late night on a bus. You're tired. You just broke out of prison. So naturally, you talk. We all relate. And you know, here we have Eugene, who who knows all this stuff from the books he's read. And he's talking to a man who lived it and lived right next to Robert Johnson, who is his uh, the the key figure that underlies the whole story. He's got questions. I like that. There's no judgment. Eugene, Ralph Macchio mm-hmm. character, says, I know you went to prison for killing men. It's all in the books. Did you really do it? Yeah. And and Willie tells him the story. Yes, I, I did it. And and this is how it went down. I smacked a guy in the head for, for taking too much of our, our income. He had lied about it, and he, uh, he took a broken bottle, came after me, and I shot him. End of story. And Ralph Macchio's character, Eugene, is it Martone? Martone. 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 It's not. Yeah. He he doesn't judge him. It's like okay, okay. As long as I got yeah. the truth, I I'm happy. And and I think that's a big story to share with this young man. Also, a very personal yeah. story. So I like that they're bonding on that bus. I I enjoyed that direction, and I enjoyed the um, the performances between the two actors yeah. in that bus scene. I thought it was really well done. Joe Seneca is so naturalistic. He he mm. was he was amazing. We also had this interesting uh, conversation about how it was that Robert Johnson actually died. Was he poisoned? Was he poisoned? He's dead. What all means the same thing, dead. Have you researched the story, uh, uh, Robert Johnson's story? I don't think that I discovered that exactly um, because it was kind of mysterious. And he died very young, too. He was like 20. He was in the 27 club. Yeah. 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 But I, I don't know that the circumstances are actually known for sure 
what I did find is that, yeah, the death, the death certificate only listed the date and location of a no official cause of death and there was no autopsy. So it's, it's, yeah, it, there's a few possibilities. Um, I don't think there's a definitive answer. I've heard poisoning and I also heard stabbed, but <laughs> are there any other theories besides that? I, I did read in one source that he had congenital, it's probable that he had congenital syphilis. Uh, which is possibly may have contributed to his death. Again, he had a lot of legends accrued to him, including the whole devil legend. So uh, whether that's true or not, who knows? Do you, do you want to tell us the allegory within the film, the, the Robert Johnson myth of uh, making selling your soul to the devil? <laughs> Blues was the original devil's music. And interestingly enough, another context of the time of the film, it came out during the height of the, the satanic panic over heavy metal music. Wait, the, the I don't know this. So there was a satanic panic? Yes. Where was I during this? <laughs> it's, it's satanic panic seems to go in cycles. Okay. Doesn't it? They yeah. do, and they, they and they attach to different things. At that era, it was the music. Uh, this mm-hmm. was the, the, the time of the Parents Media Resource Center, the headed by Tipper Gore, uh, Al Gore's wife, yeah. that wanted – that's where the – that's how we got the warning labels on uh, – on CDs and, and albums about oh. a potentially uh, offensive explicit. lyrics, explicit okay. lyrics. But yeah, there, the whole backward masking thing was going on at that time where people thought if you played the records backward, there were hidden messages that would subliminally get into the teenagers' brains and cause them to do terrible things. I mean, that caused me to look for that because of yeah. hysteria. I better <laughs> I, I play that backwards and figure it out. <laughs> doing that with uh, Stairway to Heaven. What do I do it with? But the, the last thing. Paul is dead. Yeah, but the legend about Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil was not actually anything that he ever claimed. It kind of grew up after his death. Uh, Well, it may have started when he was still alive, but what happened was he emerged on the scene and he was kind of a mediocre musician. And then he disappeared for a couple of years. And when he came back, he was really, really good. And most likely, most likely he was taking lessons and practicing. Yeah, Yeah, but. Uh, but the legend started to grow and, you know, he, he has songs that allude to various things about the crossroads. There's crossroads blues. There's, uh, hellhounds on my trail. There's me and the devil blues. None of them ever actually say that he made a deal with the devil. Now there are, are other blues musicians that did have songs that made exactly that claim, but the legend grew up around him and, and it got stronger and more specific after, after he died. And, uh, the movie, takes that as a fact and adds Willie Brown's own deal with the devil to it. So that's a bit of a, a, a fiction that builds on the existing folklore. Willie Brown was a real person, wasn't he? He was. And then I thought it was Tommy Johnson, no relation. That Robert Johnson. Johnson. Yep. That had a now, who, who is Tommy Johnson in the whole – would he have been a contemporary or pre-contemporary or did he come after? I think he was a little bit before or maybe – maybe contemporary. He, I don't think he was after. I do believe Tommy Johnson was a little earlier than Robert Johnson. And yeah, they're not, not related. Sam, he used to, he used to promote himself as, as saying he sold his soul to the devil. Okay. Yeah. That'll pack a house. And at, he put it, yeah, I mean, he put it all into his sort of his persona and his act. And a lot of people theorize that maybe Robert Johnson was kind of borrowing a little bit from that to, you know, yeah. Add to his elan. <laughs> but I, I was going to continue. The the the, fa- the blues was considered the devil's music, and it was primarily a black 
art form at the time. And it was all part of the Jim Crow era, you know, seeing uh, black people, especially in the South, being portrayed as savages or, uh, you know, brutes, however, whatever word might be used, you know, of the devil. So there there was certainly a uh, bifurcation at that time between black and white culture. One, one interesting thing I want to mention is kind of a tangent, but okay. you notice that in uh, tangents, by the way. <laughs> When uh, when Willie Brown first meets the the figure who is not never actually called the devil, he, he refers to him by the name of Legba. Legba was actually an African deity, Haitian and Creole, um, who uh, was associated with uh, crossroads. Mm-hmm. And I notice a lot of the tricks for gods are associated with the crossroads. Yeah. But there are at least some folklorists who have uh, theorized that the devil, as referred to in blues songs, uh, is really a reference to Legba that's being somewhat camouflaged. But, you know, Legba is not a malevolent figure like the Christian devil is. So the... Uh, He's amoral. Impl- He's not immoral or moral. He- what is Mrs. Michael saying in the background? I'd like oh, to hear I'm sorry. He said, yes, he is, he is definitely dangerous, yep. but he's not malevolent. He's not the supervillain. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now that that is a somewhat Good controversial... Point point of controversy in, in uh, you know, in academic circles. I, I think that's the significance of referring to him as Legba early in the film. And then toward the end, he done changed his name to Scratch, which is a more recognized uh, reference to the Christian devil. Now, I did happen when I watched it back, uh, I did freeze it on what we can see of the contract. And it does specifically refer to his soul remaining in hell for eternity, which is certainly uh, a, a Christian concept. So. At least to that extent, the film is identifying who the devil figure is. What would be the hoodoo equivalent, though? The Christian concept of hell. But the devil is certainly part of hoodoo, is is he not? He Michael? is, because, but oh. it's syncretism. It's where you have one <laughs> yeah. you know, prevailing religion that's forced and foisted upon a people, and yet they have right. their own belief systems as well, many uh, as a result from belief systems back in Africa and generationally. But, and but back to, so back you, to you what have Michael's both saying, existing. Well, back to what Michael's saying, even though the contract says going to burn in hell for eternity, what would be more? Well, not, not, it didn't say burn, real, it just said remain in hell. Or remain in hell for eternity. Uh, I'd, I'd be more realistic. I don't actually know a whole lot about the afterlife concepts of uh, of voodoo, but um, it would not include uh, being tormented for all eternity. That, that, that's a uniquely Christian thing or, or Abrahamic thing, as far as I know. You can't extricate uh, one from the other. But when you combine the two, you have a, a unique and recognized, organized religion in Haiti. Whereas you don't That's have true. that organization when you when you get to the states, and obviously with for enslaved African Americans, that would have been very difficult. I, I felt as a non-southerner that, and, but but I've lived in the South, yeah. uh, in various locations. Uh, that for me, a big part of the theme outside of the music and the and and the straight up history, what yeah. was um, just the South. That wasn't that pretty fied magnolia blossom, big dresses, mm. yippee ya ya, Kentucky yeah. Derby South yeah. that, that didn't generationally do fantastically, and that includes uh, the girl. You know that that it's not all 
nice. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's not. Done in a way that doesn't condemn the South. It's just this is the other <laughs> half of the picture. Yeah, and and you know Willie Brown's father was probably a slave, uh, mm-hmm. if not his grand. You know he's probably just yeah. a generation. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so, one yeah, generation I, I, really I survive in in that reality. Yeah. yeah. By the way, um, Linda has a bourbon and I have a scotch, so we're ready to move into the heavier part. Yeah. Of the oh, okay. Story. Okay. okay. I, I actually, I, I did it backwards. I had uh, Jamaican coffee to start with, and so. now I'm on a virgin coffee. I, I started with two cups of coffee, and now I've moved on. We, we <laughs> sort of left off at uh, their hoboing, Hoboin. right? And uh, Greenville's famous for pussy. I think we left off at meeting Francis in the house. Yes. But we we miss one one important part. They're on oh, they're yeah they're the hooking it on by by foot yeah. on the train. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's like, you're never gonna. What did, what does Willie say to him? Well, he, well, Willie says, look at that train, and does sort of a a musical variation on the train. You know, the the rhythm of the train on his harmonica. And and Eugene starts playing along. And I guess Willie tears him up a bit and says, you, you don't you don't have it. You just don't have it yet. And he kind of smart ass says, well, maybe I should make a deal with the devil. Right. Yeah. Willie yeah, slaps him hard. hard. Mm, yeah. And that's a shocking moment. Like, okay. yeah. OK. You never you would never see Mr. Miyagi slap Daniel. No, <laughs> I was thinking when when that happened in the movie, I'm like, it's really rare that we would see that demonstration of. Uh, physical violence and part of the narrative in movies today. Especially if you're dealing with like uh, uh, an old person and, and basically a child. I mean, he's not. He's, he's, he's not a minor yeah, I mean, in Mississippi. And there's a visceral reaction. I mean, Willie is uh, understands the implication of what he's yes. saying, even if he doesn't mean it. And I mean, I think the reaction is is out of horror for uh, Eugene. Yes, so my thought yeah, was it, it's, it's like definitely. what you would do if your child ran, was going to run to the street. You'd snatch him exactly. back uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe give him a pop or something. I don't have children. have never done that, so if anybody comes after me. But but you'd be so horrified. Like, don't <laughs> right. even think Absolutely. about it. No, no, no. It's a horrified slap. It's yeah. not a. It's not an abusive slap. It's no. like you take... You know, your soul is precious. Yeah. 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 yeah Will. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't. Eugene doesn't it's a moonlight that, moment. Yeah. And Eugene, uh, even when he's staring it in the face, he says, I don't believe any of this. So I don't think he realizes that uh, that it's serious. And uh, Willie knows. Yeah, and that's a that's a very powerful moment. And we we know who's who's in charge there. I, I think we know Willie is in charge the whole time. Mm hmm. And um, so they make their way to this this sort of derelict house. It's pouring rain, pouring rain, and they're dragging. Well, I'm not happy about get, him in the Fender Telecaster getting all wet there but on the way to the house. Before that, we we he gets electrified. <laughs> yeah, we we Wait, forgot the poncha. Oh yeah, yeah, the poncha. Yeah, it happens before they they get to the house. So he, they're they're at some uh you know Wait. corner store in the country. <laughs> Yeah, this, this is where the, this is where we learned that Muddy Waters invented electricity. Yeah. I love that line. It's such a great line. It's true, though, in a way, right? Is yeah. he the first one that's documented as electrifying his guitar? I think, yeah, possibly, in that time range anyway. So he's able to trade Eugene's watch for a Fender Telecaster and a Pignose amp. And having some idea what a, a Fender Telecaster goes for, even used, that's got to be one hell of a watch. 
Yeah, well, you said 1100 I mean, adjust for inflation and all that sort of thing. Uh, how much is that watch worth in a pawn shop? But he, de- I think he says something. He must say something else to that guy in the pawn shop because he says, let's go down and we'll talk business. Yeah. Well, he does. He's, he, he, he says to him, he's like, this watch, this watch is a nice watch. It's worth $1,100. Just like he said. His mom gave it to you, to him. You know yeah. what I mean? You know what I mean? And that, yeah. That's, that's when I knew. I'm like, oh, okay. And somehow too, we, uh, we find out a little bit later that Willie, uh, also bought a gun at the pawn shop. So. Mm. Yeah. However much money that. That was a hell of a watch. However much money that watch was worth, uh. I didn't see a hundred dollars for the amp. And, or the, guitar and the, the Telecaster, and he gets an, a gun on top of it. Yeah, it's $400 for the rig. But if that's an authentic American-made Telecaster, that is a steal. Yeah. Mm. Well, I wonder what a Telecaster went for back then. They've never been cheap. Mm. So now can we go to meet Francis? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're in a hurry to get to Francis. I like her. I do. She's got moxie. In her her bikini underwear. You know what? We were all in our underwear then running around. (laughs) Now now we've become, I don't know what, prudish about that. Getting rained on. Getting rained on, running around in flip-flops and underwear. So that's just what it was. That's another good line. Excuse me while I go put my pants on. Yeah. And she squares off with Willie as an equal almost because he recognizes her as a fellow mm-hmm. roadster hoboer. Mm-hmm. Is hoboer a word? Hobo. Officially. She's hobo. She's hobo. Now I didn't, I wasn't aware of that word being anything au courant in 86. Maybe it was still or did they? I think, it? I, I think Willie is, uh, using his, uh, age 20 vocabulary. I don't think it was current in the 80s. Although, on Facebook, I once referred to somebody as a wino, and somebody responded and said, you say hobo, too? And I was like, with the occasion calls for it. I, I might have yeah. said that. <laughs> I like those words. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. So. Me, too. I just think of Schoolhouse Rock in conjunction. It might have been you. It might have been Rick, for that matter. Yeah, it was probably one of us. Jump on that hobo. immediately. <laughs> well, I don't think hobo has a necessarily a negative connotation. Hobos are supposed to like ride the rails and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah they, they travel. Yeah, there's a code of ethics and bottom. <laughs> well, that's the Will even brings that up. He's like, yeah, hobos respected each other back in my day. I, I like <laughs> how he says to Francis, "What name do you go by?" He doesn't ask her mm. her name. He says, "What name do you go by?" Yeah, that's good. That good touch. Telling. Quickie I guess, on Google because it's what I like to do. Uh, hobo. <laughs> Uh, some people are suggesting that it stems from the soldiers returning from the Civil War who were, quote, homeward bound. Well, uh, okay. Uh, okay. That makes, that makes sense. We're trying to get home. Why didn't we there figure that out on our own? That's, that's a note that seems we're not logical. smart. <laughs> Just a dunderhead. But, but she's lovely, Jamie Gertz, in this role, and she reminds me of that person in, what was that? <sighs> Girls' school program, The Facts of Life. I can't remember. Her. Oh, Joe, Joe from Joe. Facts of Life. She reminded me of Joe from Facts of Life. She's got a lot of spunk, and Willie recognizes right away that she would be an asset on the road for hitchhiking. I love her. A few years later, when she was in Twister, yeah, I thought she was. She was the sex therapist that was trying to conduct calls while they're in the middle of the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Jamie. I, I think that. the only thing that ended her career was she married an extremely wealthy. Uh, who did she marry? 
Oh, good um, Lord. Do we have to look up something? Hold on. Yes, we have to. All right. This is part of it, guys. <laughs> Remember when we made fun of Wiki? Jim Gertz. Well, we can't now. We can't. Uh, she is 57. Twister was 96. She has three kids. So uh, keeping up with busy. the Steins in 2006. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to oh, no. Was she in Endless Love? Oh, my God. She was, she was <laughs> in in Facts of Life, Sam. Are you kidding what? me? She wasn't Joe. Yes, was she? Recur- she had a recurring role for four episodes. I bet she played Joe's sister. Because <laughs> really, she, she played Boots. I, I was very Boots jealous Saint of those Claire. New York Jersey girls, and they seemed tough, and they had the accent. And I was just yeah. this, you know, South Florida rube. So <laughs> I always liked those those New York. She so, played. So, so you're finding that Jamie Gertz made one movie every ten years, right? I'm seeing something that like that. Well, she was McBeal, on ER. So. Allie McBeal. Uh, she played Christmas. Gilda Radner as, as Gilda Radner in the television film. Oh, wow. This Is Us. So Seinfeld. that's a very recent series. Oh, I'm still in the 90s. She's been married to Tony Ressler, billionaire business executive wow. since 1989. Wait, what's his occupation? Billionaire executive? It says billionaire. <laughs> says Gertz has been married to billionaire business executive Tony Ressler since 1989. How do you do that? I don't know. They're about being a billionaire. <laughs> Wait, there's something with the NBA, and I do that rings a well, bell. Then, well, then you don't really have to worry about getting roles. But back in 1986, she was a hobo. She she was, and I wonder I if that's how she was credited, hobo. For right her now. age, boots and a hobo. Yeah, yeah. Be, being a relatively not uh, new on the scene actor. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long she'd been acting before that, but. I thought she did rather well, and she's definitely held her own uh, with uh, Joe Seneca. She yes. did. Yes, they all had wonderful ke- chemistry. It was such a well-written plot, and mm. I think that always just makes you know makes it so much easier for actors <laughs> to shine. Yeah, and mm, and I yeah. think uh, Walter Hill went in saying, "I'm going to do a character study, not a big overblown thing, big production, mm. Top Gun type thing, but I'm going to do." A character study, and, and he got the best out of his actors because of that. So Joe Seneca's character, Willie, says, all right, got to get with this girl, Frances. She's got leg. She's got <laughs> leg. And that must have been funny back then. Remember those pantyhose commercials, She's Got Legs? <laughs> <laughs> they came in. Well, he was right. They, get a lot more rides in your thumb. <laughs> yeah. But they, they wind up uh, down the road at Lloyd's Bar, and I guess uh, – Notel Motel. The Notel Motel. Outside. Can I just say something before we get into, you know, real things about the movie? Lloyd remind me disconcertingly of Bob Newhart. (laughs) He just (laughs) looked very much like, and Bob Newhart wouldn't be that sleazy. So it was, I had cognitive dissonance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and they say the awful racist thing. And, uh, but, but Willie gets, gets him back a bit, right? Uh, Francis is going to, you know, become part of this looks like an established brothel that Lloyd is running in the motel. I like that direction They're They're just sitting there. Uh, Eugene and Willie, yeah. you know, Eugene's sort of strumming his guitar and Willie's kind of taking it in at the dumpster they, like you, you know, do. He, yep. And and then he, Eugene, of course, sees Francis walking across the parking lot into one of the motel rooms. But that conversation in the motel room is pretty, you know, skin um, crawl. It is skin crawl worthy, and um, 
probably some of the most bare bones uh, discourse in the narrative about the life on the road. Yeah. And, and, you know, there isn't a big bat over her head. Like we're going to show you that this is bad. It's, it's very matter of fact in the film. She's doing what she has to do to, (laughs) to get across. She's going to run across these Lloyds of the world. And, but she doesn't really want to, we don't know if she has already crossed that line. She doesn't look like she's doing it for the first time. No, but the the expression like uh, this, I'm going to take you for a test run, and then I'll let you push ass out, uh, push all ass night out long. of this room all mm. night long. Ooh, that man, man. like Bob Newhart, who I love. So we we know who Lloyd is, <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, Eugene decides to be her white knight and rescue her. Mm-hmm. And he's not that good at it. No, he's he's not. <laughs> I, I think jumping on somebody's back, piggyback style, is never a good way to fight. You, you have a disadvantage right away. And, uh, Thank and God Willie for saves Willie. the day. He comes in. We don't we don't know until this point that he's he's got a gun, but he comes in and says, "Get off of him, and uh, we'll take your car keys." And Francis uh, puts in uh, and your wallet, please. And I, I think to give more sympathy to the characters, Francis says, we'll, we'll just have your car for 24 hours. She says that, but then they sell it in a junkyard. Yeah. But well, Willie doesn't, I don't think, want to get caught. I think no. Willie's like always wheels, aware of the no. stakes. <laughs> yeah. Top, the t- tippity top of that being oh, his soul. The stakes are much higher for him. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He's a black man. And a fugitive. Yeah. 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 Besides the soul, just going around in the South in general. In yeah. this era, still in the 80s, yeah. Yeah. This scene, that scene where um, Willie comes in, he pulls again, reminded me so much of the scene in Thelma and Louise, uh, where um, Louise pulls the gun in the parking really? lot. Oh, yeah. 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 There was something about uh, Thelma's naivete, mm-hmm. and um, it's like, wake, wake the hell up. There's bad people out here. Yeah. You know, Willie knows that. And these two kids do not know how bad it is. Well, I think Francis kind of does, but maybe not to the extent that Willie does. It's it's not her first time. I think I think it is. The rodeo. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't seem squeamish, but she's not thrilled about it. And I I think she's glad when when Eugene is going to be her savior. And, And she actually makes she counters with if you're going to save me, get the wallet while you're at it. Knock his lights out. So she she's not an innocent, and nobody is really, except for Ralph Macchio, and he loses his innocence along the way, but I think in a good way. (laughs) Well, he needed to, yeah. Well, because he's visiting this world, and this is their world. That is a good point. Well, so he has the option of saying, "Okay, I've had enough. Goodbye." Yeah. Yeah, he can go back to his his, you know. What are those things? Call his house, uh, or his yeah. dormitory. <laughs> so they hitch a ride, or, or they have the. Oh, sorry, I'm going back because I looked up for a second. And I see Roku, Roku, in very purple letters. Um, they they do trade in the car. Is that what they do for? They do. Money? Yeah, they they get a, they they make some distance, but Eugene's getting worried about them being in a stolen car with somebody who's escaped from uh, prison prison hospital. Yeah. And so uh, Willie stops and uh, sells it in a junkyard. You don't want no mess with no paperwork. So, I mean, Lloyd is going to go to Jacksonville, Florida and look for his car in the parking lot of the bus station. And it's not going to be there. I love that they say Jacksonville, Florida. Like, that's a long way away. <laughs> he's going to have to go. <laughs> well, she's heading to Jackson. And then he's like, no, it's she's going to be in Jacksonville. Jackson, Mississippi, uh-huh. though. And he says, Jackson, yeah, Jackson, Florida. Mississippi versus Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. 
But they have that discussion in the junkyard. They're sitting there in one of those junked cars. Yeah. yeah. She's telling them about her, her home life and why she keeps running away. Yeah. And he doesn't seem like he has any desire to return home either at this point. He's, he's taken off. He's ready to leave Juilliard and all of his privilege <laughs> behind. But that's the thing about privilege. You can do it until you're tired of it, I guess, and, and return. I, at some point, he's going to get expelled. They're going to notice his absentees. <laughs> <laughs> While he's going to be okay because he's learning the blues. Yeah. yeah. He's going to the school of hard knocks. I want. I wanted to be. It, this movie just made me want to do that. Just like Francis or like Ralph Macchio. Not like Francis. Okay. I didn't sell my soul to the devil. But there is an awesome crossroads very close to where I live. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and it it feels like a powerful place when you're out there. Yeah. You can feel having driven my my daughter's school was out the high school was out that way and the name of the high school is called South Fork and the joke is Pitchfork cuz it's way out in the sort of cow pasture there's nothing out there absolutely nothing knowing the myth of the crossroads just driving her out there the first time i'm like oh my god this is something out of a movie so um clipping along after they they make their deal is that when they end up in the barn they're gonna tuck down for the night in the barn or am i missing something here i think you're right on it yeah yeah they get to the barn eugene and francis go up into the loft willie is tired he sleeps on the the ground level. And and Francis sort of tells Eugene, you know, this guy is conning you all the way. Do you really think all of this is true in this lost song? And yeah. And, and she tries to sow some doubt, but he's very loyal to his friend, isn't he? To Willie. Get out. Yeah, of yeah. Here. But there's there's another great line as they're going into the barn. She tells that story. And she says, "Sounds like bullshit to me." And Willie says, "Me too." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh. There's something that trumps his loyalty, and that's uh, his his uh, something his libido. So he goes up and apologizes to Francis, and they have their kiss. I thought that was really well done for he a was. love scene. Just was. leave it at a simple <laughs> kiss. Yeah, I didn't need to see and a humping and pumping macho. So I'm glad <laughs> that we didn't see that. No, I mean it's all implied. We know what we know what happens. We don't have to see it graphically. No. Yeah. So it's um, done really well. Smartly done. And then the the lawmen come in and mess everything up. Now I like the choices. This was I, great. I found the choices interesting, the casting for the lawmen. Who is the sheriff that they're gonna they're where they're gonna turn him over Tillman or something? We're gonna turn you over to Sheriff Tillman. Yeah, you'd be in I can't remember the name of the county, you'd be Sheriff Tillman's problem or Tilford, I think. Tilford, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love this whole uh, uh sequence of scenes. Get rousted by the local lawmen, get escorted to the county line. We know this shit actually happens. I know it definitely is. <laughs> the cash is missing, but the deputy says he hasn't seen it. Well, well before, oh, he, yeah. when they're in the back of the police car, Eugene asks Willie, what do they do now? What usually happens? And mm-hmm. Willie knows what used to happen. And he doesn't quite go there, but he says they would take us out to the country. And so he trails off. He doesn't say what really happens, but we know right. that on this earth. Bad news. Yeah, they, they, I think it's another example of uh, the film handling racism, both past and present, present in the film's present. With a certain amount of subtlety, 
but in a way that makes it impossible to ignore. And in a, in a, in a way, the subtlety is almost more troubling than explicit would be. Really? Would you expand upon that? You know, Willie alludes to what happened, but he doesn't actually come right out and say it. And it leaves it to our imagination and what we know of history to fill in the blanks. It, it doesn't leave it. It doesn't make it concrete, like actually showing it would. Yeah. So we're, we're able to imagine whatever fits within what we know. I, I and, suppose I would have been young in 86 and maybe I didn't go there in my mind or I passed by it superficially. Yeah, I think if this movie were remade, it certainly would be very explicit, I think. What really sounded like to me in that moment was if you talk to, like, a, a war veteran. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. and, and you ask them about how it was during the war. Uh, and, and for the most part, they don't go, oh, let me tell you some great stories. Yeah, no. You know, they're very troubled by what they experience, and they know there's a gigantic, gigantic gulf between what they have felt and what you're asking. Yeah. So, so you know, I think he, he was trying to say it, but he couldn't bring himself to because it sounds so horrific to somebody who's never had to experience that. He's always aware right. that they're kids. They're just kids. Yes. They're kids and they've never been through what he's been through. And by God, they better never be. Yeah. Francis kind of ha- lets out a little sigh or something. She has some uh, like acknowledges. Oh, like yeah. Oh, yeah. that's not good. I I like that there's no embellishment. That yeah. it's just sort of the way it's treated by Willie is so matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, he's not trying to shock these kids. He's not trying to teach them nothing. He is just traveling with them. Yeah, yeah. just the fact. To a point, I think he's not invested in Eugene. To a point, then he becomes invested. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So they um, Sheriff Tilford arrives and he's the the top dog, and he's feeling good. He's in a good mood that day, so he tells them just get themselves over into the other county and they'll be sheriff so-and-so's problem. Get over the bridge. Francis would like the money back, the money clip she stole from Bob Newhart. And um, <laughs> they, uh, they, they... Evil Bob Newhart. Evil. In another verse, <laughs> Bob Newhart is Lloyd. <laughs> Troubles me. Uh, so they do make their way across the bridge. So then they're the on to... Uh, I think it's the uh, the roadhouse. Yeah, right? roadhouse is the they get, they get into it another town and they're short money and the basically the only way they can get money is is <laughs> Willie sends them into the white bar across the street. Just like, exactly go get us some money. I, lo- I love I love his attitude. <laughs> Look guys, go get us some money, lightning boy. Yeah. And <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go over here and have a good time. I'll check in with you later. <laughs> Loved that. Take care of my business over here. Yeah. And he hands him a gun. <laughs> yeah. Put this in your belt. And, and I love the bartender. Like you don't have any. And he does look like 12. Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> He's very he looks so young. In this he movie. looks very young. But but the bartender, I think, you know, when I think about what the bars we got into. In the 80s, mm. not even a fake ID in some cases. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. I keep thinking of the Red Lion, but that wasn't even oh, a, a yeah. true roadhouse. Just your local hole-in-the-wall watering hole. <laughs> well, Willie, Willie tells him to go play some songs and make some money. Like, <laughs> you can do that in a bar, in a, in a roadhouse? They've already got their own music going. <laughs> but I love the contrast. Yeah. You go in and it's all countrified. 
the music. And of course, Francis is, is going to try to hustle a little bit. And they, uh, she, she steals a wallet and, and there's a big brouhaha and, and a bar fight and they're expelled, you know, and I like that the bartender says you two run along. You have a lot of growing up to do. <laughs> like we're, we're going to teach you a lesson, you know, no harm, no harm. I love that they're so shocked that he has a firearm. Yeah. yeah. They've got one. <laughs> I mean, today it's, yeah. you know, and that, but that the only person that does have, Heavy metal. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's packing some uh, hefty uh, weaponry. Is the proprietor, the owner of the bar? Yeah. That seems like okay. I just this like to know what happens when you shoot me. your ceiling because it seems he bad. has a right to defend his his establishment. Right. right. So Francis has has pickpocketed a, a guy and he makes her give it back to him. Yeah. Mm. I like that scene. He's poor. He's not doing well. He's got a family and she has a bit of a conscience. Like okay. I'll give it back. That, that sounds fair. <laughs> and they go across the street to the juke house, and uh, there's some real music going on there. And I believe those are I real musicians, the- known musicians. I don't know my blues performers well enough. Do you happen to know, Michael? Or- I do not. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm seeing I, I thought the vocalist. music at, the, at the, uh, the country place was actually pretty good. It sounded like some revved up Reba, Reba McIntyre. But more, you know, grungy, roadhousey country. Okay. Liked it. Okay. Um, I'm just noting that the Juke House musicians are harmonica vocalist uh, Frank Frost, drums John Price, lead guitar Otis Taylor, whose name I have heard, bass guitar Richard Shebby Holmes, and keyboard Terry L. Evans. And and it's grind, and it's low, and it's raw, and you can feel it. You can feel the difference. You can see mm-hmm. the difference. You can feel the difference. Difference. Yeah, it's good. Both, both, yes. they enjoyed both. But, you know, the folks at the, the Juke House look at these two white kids and, and size them up in the same way that the folks at Krupp's would have looked at Willie or anybody else from just across the street in 1986. So it's a little right. troubling. And it's immediate. I mean, they, they, they are not exactly hostile, but kind of threatening. And yeah. then uh, Willie leads him up onto the stage to uh, try to smooth things over. Yeah, he saves his ass because they're going to take his guitar. Let's take that guitar away from him. And uh, and he introduces him. Says, this boy came a long way. He's going to – he yeah. whispers to, to Eugene, you better hope we take him home or something. What's the line? Yeah, we're going to get some heat. We got some heat from the other side. We're going to get heat from this side if we don't take him back home. Yeah, I love that yeah. term, take you home. And uh, <laughs> that's – and he looks silly. Okay, let's just get it out there. Eugene thinks he's made it because he's in this deep joint. He's playing with Willie, who's, who's wailing on that harmonica, and he's doing too much with the movement, isn't he? Yeah. Happy, happy boy. And <laughs> not looking too good. Yeah. He's playing well, but he looks like he is uh, completely out of his element, which he is. Yes. But but he's ecstatic. Well, Will, Willie is uh, – what is the name of the song? Oh, it's, gosh. Uh, I'm Willie Brown. Call me Willie. Call me Willie. What a great. And that's him singing, right? Yes, I think Joe so. Joe Seneca? I believe I think it so. is. Love that song. Yeah. Great. Smokehouse Brown. And uh, I don't know, do we get the whole song? But we get back at the, I guess that's like a little hotel or boarding house or something, where nobody questions these this trio. I like that. Well, they got $300 for the night. Yeah. Which is a big, I mean, $300, that's pretty that's good. That's a good for, score. 
Yeah. In Mississippi, yeah, he can get a pretty decent uh, rack for that yeah. amount of money. And uh, and Eugene's ecstatic, and he's sort of boasting to to Francis, saying, "I knocked it out of the park. I'm a blues man, and we can go to Chicago, and you can drive the van." And she's just sort of looking at a map, trying to figure out her way, and says, "What? I'm the van driver? You know, that's my mm. that's what I get out of this." And what does he say that I wanted to slap him for? Like, don't sell yourself short. Don't cut yourself out of this or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was don't sell yourself short. Yeah. And uh, Willie comes in, and he's sort of three sheets to the wind and just says something. You know, Ralph Macchio wants some sort of approbation for this, yeah. this gig. And I think Willie's response is something like, where'd you learn those pussy chords? You know, just <laughs> not going to give it. Yeah. Not going to give it to him. And they get no. into a little altercation. Eugene, who was uh, on top of the world 10 seconds ago, is now he's thoroughly uh, crashed down to earth. Yeah, he's just a mean old man or something like that to Francis. Yeah, that's what he yeah, Similar he does, to yeah. what his Juilliard mentor was saying, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No kidding. That's a good point. And so Willie storms off. Uh, first, Ralph Macchio slams the door. And then uh, I love the the back wave. You know, the I'm done with you back wave. When Willie's walking away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah finished it's with great. Me. Slams the door. And uh, uh, cut scene to what? It's it's the next morning. You see uh, actually someone checking a watch. Oh, no, no, wait. Willie's having uh, another flashback bad dream. That's creepy. Oh, yeah, creepy. the hellhounds on your trail dream. That was terrifying. That he's, was really uh, scary. Yeah, he's rolling in the bed, and uh, Joe Morton comes in, and he's, like, very, very, very small against the big door, and he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then he has this whole speech about, uh, you can't get away, hellhounds on your trail, boy. Yeah. 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 And that's a great effect that traveled, I thought, because it could have been really hokey with the wrong effect. But just by using that sepia footage, you know, old timey looking footage and uh, and making him smaller and then larger, that worked for me. Yeah, it did travel well, Sam. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, just try the, the simplicity of it and watching it so many years later, yeah. you know, decades later, yeah. it does travels it well. It holds. And uh, and so his literal demons are, are are getting stronger and stronger as he gets to the heart of Crossroads, you know, getting nearer and nearer to Crossroads, closer and closer. And uh, he wakes up and or, or I guess Francis wakes him up because she has packed and he asks her why she's creeping around that early in the morning. There are no goodbyes on the road. Yeah, this is where she, this is where she leaves them. And uh, she has her own agenda. She's not following them. And she never said she was. And he gives her some, uh, gives her a hundred dollars to keep her safe and you don't want no more motel men. He's come to care for her and she's come to care for him in that short time. And, Mm -hmm. but I think she doesn't see herself as the, as having a part in this, in this scenario. No, and it, and it, it's not what she wants. I mean, she has her own plans and nothing that's happened has changed her mind about that. I don't think I, I thought you, you mentioned earlier, um, about how she was, you know, in and out of the film. But I, I think this is a really, really nicely told story of people whose lives intersect for a short time. Yeah. And they have influence on each other. They they grow through each other. Yeah. But then they go their separate ways. And uh, as far as we know, never see each other again. This happens a lot in life, and it doesn't happen a lot in storytelling. No. And, and having it happen with a love interest is radical. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. 
It's the crossroads. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It was a really, really, really good piece of writing on the part of the scriptwriter. It, uh, it was not a happy ending. She didn't stay with them and then go off with them at the end. She, she goes her own way when she is ready to. And it was, um, a little shocking in a way, but really satisfying. It really made emo- it, it felt emotionally true. Yes, it, it did. It really did. It's it's my favorite scene in the whole movie, probably. And she has, and, unbeknownst to him, at the, you know, at the time, given him a gift, the gift of the blues feeling. He's never had loss before. Yeah. Love mm-hmm. and love lost. And I think she kind of gives something to Willie too, which is the because when he hands her the hundred dollars, she goes, "You got to be kidding me!" Yeah. You know, it's sort of like the validation that will that he's worthy of saving his own soul. Yeah. You know, despite the anything that he's done in the past. And it doesn't get man. sappy or saccharine. She puts his hand, her no, hand on his it's heart not. and kind of and thanks. See ya. Yeah. Okay. Wonderfully done. I really love that scene. Yeah. Really well written and well acted. It is one of the key reasons I think this movie feels so very real, even given mm-hmm. the mythical elements. And I, I do like that. Willie now sees him as a man. He makes a crack about you don't own a car, you're not a man in the beginning. Mm. And you see him, you see somebody pouring two glasses of scotch or whiskey or, or whatever it is. So that's that's what man to man you would do, I think, adult to adult. He doesn't tell him anything about Francis, does he? He's quiet. Not not directly. He lets him lets the penny drop on its own. Yeah, he does. It's mostly just by by a look. I mean, he can tell by his expression. And then the issue of the song comes up, and I I love the fact that he now respects him enough to where he's just going to tell him the truth. He's not going to lie to him anymore. He's not going to manipulate him anymore. Yeah. There's a sympathy that here's some he hard knocks. Here's the he reality did. of love. Here's yeah. the reality of the road. Here's the reality of your fantasy. And and then he picks. This is when he picks up the guitar and throws all his uh, book learning out the window and just plays from the heart for the mm-hmm. very first time. You know, hats off to Ry Cooter and to Ralph Macchio for looking like he's really, really playing. <laughs> he said play. So yeah. he, he played the songs. Yes. But they did bring somebody into overdub to to sharpen it. Yes. <laughs> that was right. Yeah, Ry Cooter. He was not a complete, you know, he wasn't one of these. Every so often you'll see somebody who's playing and they're clearly just stomping around. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just on the strings. It angers me when I see that. <laughs> No, I believed him. I believed him. So whether it sounded right or not, he had his hand, his fingers in the right place. Yeah, yeah. That slide in the right place. And yeah. he plays the uh, feeling bad blues there, doesn't he? And we'll link that in because it's just so great. That whole that whole soundtrack is great, folks. If you want to get it, mm-hmm. I felt it. So hey, this is kind of the the beginning of uh, the third act, I think. Then, I think that. Eugene thinks they're going to finally make it to Yazoo, right? He he still doesn't quite know the deal here with Willie and what, what his personal business is. So they drive along or they, they hitch a ride and they arrive at this house that Willie informs Eugene was the hottest cat house around uh, in its day. Did you write her name down? His friend who was supposed to be oh, living God. there? Lily. Willie Miss May. Lily Lily something. May. And Michael, that made me remember? think of New Orleans. Uh, a bit. Was, I think it was Lily or Lily May, yeah. I think it was just Lily, actually, because they were informed that she'd been dead a long time. And so her granddaughter looks, she's sort of measuring him up through the screen door, like, were you a friend of my grandmother's? And he says, yes, ma'am. And uh, they, she does allow them in. And it's no longer a brothel. 
just a boarding house. And they go upstairs and the young lady brings them each a glass of water and starts to tell Willie, well, my grandma said you were such a flirt and you played music here all the time. You're after all the girls. And he says something wry like it's it's good to be remembered. I <laughs> 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 love the way he delivered that line. And I, I do like how he speaks. What is her name? Do we have her name? The granddaughter? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look it up under cast. I, I thought you were the organized one. There's somebody listening as woman at boarding house. That must be her. There you go. What's her name? Lucia. So she doesn't have a character name. Oh, okay. Woman so at woman at boarding house. house, young woman, I'd say to late 20. Willie says to her, because the grandmother has passed on, he he says, do you know of a place, a special place? And I don't know if he says crossroads, but he says he does. He does. He, do you know of the crossroads? Do you do you understand my language or do you speak my language? This is special information, special knowledge. And Eugene is still somewhat baffled, like, why are we making this pit stop? When are we going to get to Yazoo? She calls to somebody out of frame, Hollis, take these boys off to, and this is a real place. Dockery. This is in the, in all the the lore. Yeah. And indeed they go to the crossroads and there's that old tree, which is very ominous looking. If you think about the deep South and Jim Crow and the deal with the devil and Eugene isn't buying it, but he's got his pig nose and his omnipresent. Fender Telecaster and yeah. Willie instructs him, go stand by the tree and play it for real. Play, play some blues and he'll come. He'll come along. And first we get his assistant yeah. in a nice fancy new car. Yeah. With his demon girlfriend. Nice touch. <laughs> oh, uh, we did, we forgot to mention the money. Because during the first deal, uh, Willie offers him a couple of dollars and he's not interested in your money. Yeah. And now when uh, Old Scratch shows up, Willie offers him a couple hundred dollars. And why does he and do Rob- that? I want he knows the deal. Money isn't anything to the devil. <laughs> I think it's just desperation, really. Yeah. 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 There's this whole whole wonderful dialogue about uh Willie says, uh, you know, you slept up on your end of things, you can just tear that contract up and give me some peace. And Robert Judd's delivery is just so masterful. I, I cannot <laughs> do it justice. But when he says, you know, ain't nothing ever as good as we want it to be. And this is something about tricksters as well. You have to be very specific about what you want, <laughs> not just play yeah. blues well. You know, he ends up in jail and on hard yeah. times, and you have to be pretty specific because the trickster yeah. just doesn't care. And uh, and he sort of points that out to Willie, doesn't he? No, no, we we made the yeah. deal we made. Yeah, he says you got what you were supposed to get. Ain't nothing ever as good as we want it to be. Uh, yeah, I love that line. There's something that chills me about his performance. It's just, you just know. And uh, Ralph Macchio, he still thinks this is a game, right? I guess it's not Ralph Macchio, yeah. it's Eugene. It's coming to learn. Yeah. yeah, I don't believe in it. I yeah, don't believe in myself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that, in this shit anyway. <laughs> right. Because that, that's, that's the sequence. I mean, he, he offers cutting heads, contests, which Eugene figures out. And... uh Old Scratch says, you know, if you beat my man, my big white boy from Memphis, yeah. Jack Butler, I'll tear up Willie's contract. But what if, what if my man Jack Butler win? And uh, Willie says, uh, you get me. And he says, yeah, I already got you. <laughs> he does, delivers that great way. So uh, Eugene says, well, then you got me too. And, uh, and this is when it gets real. 
They, now they could have gone hokey with this special effect because they're like, how are we going to get there? And Scratch says, I'll get you there. And boom, they're, they're at the venue, Oof. like some sort of devil stage. I don't know where, where they're going to have this guitar competition. I sound like such an idiot. A guitar competition at the devil house. <laughs> cutting, <laughs> cutting heads. Cutting heads. And, uh, but instead of like a lot of smoke and, uh, you know, effects, it's just sort of a cut. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the, the sky, the sky goes. The 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 background disappears behind him. It turns into the, just a swirl of uh, colors, and then it rematerializes into this new location. Yeah, it does it in such a way that it holds, travels well. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. So so there you have, and I know that there's. Well, we can talk about that later. But you see. By Steve Vai or his character Jack Butler on the stage grinding his axe and and playing and he has a what is the person called who helps oh god there's a current name for it I'm so square you know like a guitar tech no no that's that's sort of clapping him up and and helping him or like a hype man yes that's that's the term I want we don't get out much so yes a hype man <laughs> uh, except for it's a hype lady I don't know if that's the same lady who was in the car. I think it is. Okay. Okay. She dances, right? She does. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That was a great, great dance. Scene. And he's just tearing it up, tearing it up. But it's not blues to me. It's not. It's heavy metal shredding. And, and I I do know, I'll just say this part, that the scene that was cut was somebody else doing a cutting heads battle and, and the person battling Jack Butler, I'm going to get it out of my mouth, fails. So he loses his soul. And and so, you know, Eugene steps up to the stage and he's a little intimidated, but he does pick up the cable, plugs his guitar in, and they're on. There's a great profile shot um, because, because uh, when they're standing in the crossroads, he says, I don't believe in this shit anyway. Yeah. But there is this one great shot that kind of raises the stakes a little bit where they're, uh, Eugene – and Willie are in profile, and they're just kind of standing there at the juke joint of all juke joints. Yeah. Right? And, you, you know, what Ralph Macchio's eyes are just wide open, like, um, maybe okay, I, what maybe just it, happened? Maybe I do believe in this shit. Yeah. Maybe I do believe in this shit. Yeah. <laughs> and here we begin the – is this their name for this? You know, where you – where you somebody has to tap dance or or play a musical piece or or whatever it is, and then you have to mimic that thing and do one better. <laughs> well, that's a cutting that, head. That, that's, that's a cutting head. That's the only term for it, cutting heads. Okay. Dueling. Yeah. Dueling. Yeah. Dueling. Um, dueling guitars. Dueling guitars. I I don't know who. I guess uh, Butler must start first with a piece. And at first, it looks like Eugene is not. He's sort of looking at his hands like I'm not sure how to even begin that. But he warms up, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, he holds his own for uh, for a few rounds. And I don't know. What did you guys think of Steve Vai's performance as he's playing? <laughs> <laughs> See, this is this is getting back to what we were talking about earlier about um, why uh, I think he he or someone like him was the right person to cast uh, as opposed to a blues player. Yeah. Because this is heavy metal shredding in the '80s, especially. And Willie kind of alluded to it earlier, talking about flash and speed. It's very fast. It's very technically precise. It demands a um, a really high level of accuracy 
but it's not soulful. Unless at some sort of pointing to the way blues uh, fed into rock and roll. Well, it is. It is. Ooh, but, good but point. Yes. What, what yeah, I, I think that's true. And one of the things that makes 80s metal different than 60s and 70s is it kind of loses the blues element. Yeah. Uh, it becomes a, a more about speed and flash and less about soul. Yeah. And so if we had had a Stevie Ray Vaughan up there, it would have been a more direct competition. Yeah. But I think this is, uh, I think it, the way it worked out, it points up the differences in a level of soulfulness between the two styles. And, and, and the, uh, the 80s idea that metal music was of the devil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's into that, too. Devil music. But, uh, went on you know, and, and, and I, like, I like 80s metal. I, I, I used to listen to not much else when I was a teenager. But it does focus a lot more on how fast you can play, how accurately you can hit notes, than it does on how much emotion you're putting into what you're playing and is and that's not universal i mean there there were certainly players in that era who were soulful but a lot of the ones that were really known for technical proficiency like steve i uh ingve malmsteen uh there are a few others were all about speed and not so much about emotion do you think that walter hill decided to go that way instead of with ry cooter as the original idea was to get Ry Cooter to, to be his opposition to so that we had more sympathy. Because if you had a real blues man up there playing without all of that affect and theater that Steve Vai puts on, you you wouldn't you'd have more sympathy for the opposition. You know, if he's a really good bluesman, you'd have you don't have much sympathy for Steve Vai and all that no, snaking I, around and whatever he's doing. I think that's true. And um, in the original script, the scene was actually very different. It was not a heavy metal shredder. It was actually a black blues player. Yeah. Uh, and it took place at a fish fry and not in uh, this. Uh, you do not want uh, in, in New York white boy to be winning that. Yeah. Yeah. It, and they actually, I think they actually yeah. filmed a version of it, but it didn't work because, yeah, you, as Linda just said, New York white boy beating a black blues man in a blues contest. Yeah, just, um, no. It completely fails. So um, going tone deaf too as hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And they, they and they concluded that uh, after they thought it over and yeah. uh, and revised it. But I, I think the way it goes is you have a player who's very technical and you have a player who's less technical, but more uh, emotive. And this is how they are. This is how the back and forth goes until the very end of the battle. What do you think of the winning song? How does, yeah. how does Eugene get one up on, on Steve Vai? So it's a very interesting choice. It, what, what he plays, he's suddenly reaching back to Juilliard, and uh, he plays a heavy metal guitar version, a blues guitar version of uh, Paganini's Fifth Caprice, <laughs> which is uh, actually a, a, originally violin music. Yeah. So... He is adding subtle blues touches to it. And for a long time, I thought, you know, it was a bit of a cheat. He's reaching for Western Europe to win this contest. But he's actually kind of combining blues technique with uh, with Western classical or Western European classical music. And that's something that would have probably been pretty well received in in because when Robert Johnson wasn't playing his own stuff, he was playing country western, he was playing oh. Bing Crosby songs. Yeah. 
you know, whatever was, uh, was popular. And so again, we're getting back to the, you know, Creole, think about what Creole is. Creole is when you take two different languages and make one new language out of them. Mm-hmm. And what Eugene does here is he takes two different languages and makes one new language out of him. And this is what both his professor at Juilliard and Willie Brown told him he couldn't do. Yeah. And that is how he, uh, he ultimately bests Jack Butler, who is very good at what he does, but only does one thing. Yeah. And he picks the most technically challenging of, of the Western classical composers, Paganini. Probably. Well, so, certainly yeah. for violin. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, and I, I saw, I found a video on YouTube of a, a woman playing that on the violin and I find violin to be some sort of sorcery anyway. Um, <laughs> was it Hillary so, Hahn? Just got to, I got to know. I don't think so. I, I'll have to look it up again. I don't oh, remember. Name, but I don't think that doesn't sound familiar, that but I mean, the piece weird. on violin is so fast in what, what is shown in the film, which I'm, I'm, I don't know who, I don't know if it's Rykuda or someone else actually playing it. It is, Incredibly, it's the same the same tempo as the way it's played on violin. It's a very difficult piece of music, and it's extremely difficult. Yeah, he uh, and so Eugene plays it. He plays it with a blues flourish, and this is that piece of music on the soundtrack is called Eugene's Trick Bag, and uh, and that was the term that was used uh, of the blues musicians. What instrumental tricks they had? That was their trick bag. Okay, and um, so it harks back to that. And so Jack Butler tries to replicate it and he makes it part of the way and then he falters and he tries again and he gets a couple of notes further and then still can't get all the way and finally just drops his guitar on the stage and walks off. With all that teen angst. He doesn't have the classical... Um, foundation the the techniques of the classical foundation no. you know he just can't get those up upper notes <laughs> he, get, he gets he get yeah and, and he it's a bend i mean he needs to do a bend about a pitch and a half i think up from where the actual notation is and he can't get there and uh and he just throws down his guitar and i think that was steve vi's real guitar i'm not sure <laughs> which was especially <laughs> throws it down in disgust and walks away and I liked that the trickster, that that Scratch, looks at it. He's not mad. He just uh-uh. he just looks, evaluates, and rips up the contract. <laughs> yep. You, you and, and 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 Eugene and Willie go into a blues number, and the chorus joins in, and uh, uh, they have a. It's the uh, equivalent of the two lovers coming for a kiss in front of the crowd, and they, everyone yeah. applauds. You know, <laughs> you yeah, know the feel good. After, you have an after party, and we see uh, him tearing up the contract. Yeah. Yeah. At least soul is saved. (laughs) You know, I I like the way that that duel is kind of structured because in the beginning, it's almost like they're tuning their guitars. That you know, Jack Butler starts off, and then uh, Eugene kind of answers, and then the song starts and the dancing starts, Mm -hmm. and they're both kind of I I like that the direction for Steve Vai was he's kind of jamming right along as mm-hmm. they're playing together this song mm-hmm. and, and then they start riffing and then, uh, and then you have, you have Eugene surpassing him, but I didn't think that Steve Vai's, he was more of a shredder, but 
it's almost like there's some blues sprinkled in like a spice, like slap yeah. your mama, like it's shredding, mm. but I'm yeah. just going <laughs> to, you're going to sprinkle yeah. some, some blues nuance in it. Anyway, yeah, that, I mean, it, it wasn't completely absent, but yeah, it was less so than, uh, than Eugene had. But I like that observation because you're, you're right. There's sort of a rhythm that's missing from a rhythm and a tone that's missing from eighties rock so it, it was a, more prevalent mm-hmm. before it was a different animal i mean if you if you compare like 60s era black sabbath to the hair bands from the 80s the the scales that are used the um the notation that is used it mm-hmm. it, it ends up being uh, a very different kind of sound even though it's it's from the same family but it's certainly not the same individual there's no warmth in that tone so she has she has a a, a disagreement so what, what i've forgotten what, what my disagreement is what is that you went huh I know that sigh. Well, I um I don't know what I I probably disagreed with something. I said I was in a different camp from Michael. What was it? Oh, I thought at first, but I've changed my mind since because Linda uh, said something important, and then I said yes, that would have been tone death at the fish fry. So I think my About- original thought was yeah, it should have been blues against blues instead of shred against uh, blues. Okay. But okay. I'm changing my mind now. It's my prerogative <laughs> to do so. <laughs> After being enlightened, you were sighing about something from five minutes ago. <laughs> Who knows what I? I, I don't know. <laughs> I just look at it like traditional versus. Hey, this is what we're doing now, kids. Are we but, not yeah, going to talk I about the know. theatrics and body language Steve Vai uses throughout? Oh, oh yeah, bar in his face and all that. Yeah, he's that very, was ridiculous. He's very aggro. Yeah, <laughs> I also think that this is maybe uh, talking to eighties kids. Mm, yes, you're right. Well, Here's your music, but it, the blues are not dead. Yeah. Listen to this and it be it. Yeah. Right. Listen and, to your forebears. You know? Yeah. 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 Don't, don't lose <laughs> And again, thinking about this was a time of Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jeff Buckley and uh, Johnny Winter and, and people like that Very who funny. were incorporating blues into, into rock and uh, making a, a, uh, a new thing out of it. And, yeah, I, I think I, I think that's correct. It was uh, just showing how the two styles are symbiotic. And, Not even uh, symbiotic. It, it's parasitic. Yeah. 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 I like that word, yes. Boss will not exist without the blues. Absolutely. Yep, that is absolutely That's correct. true. I, I had a professor whose whole Ph.D. premise was there was something called blue tonality and that you could go and you could trace that – those notes, those chords, those tones, all the way back to like classical music. Yeah, and that there, there is a common thread that binds binds that sound together and moves through different forms of music. The sad tone. Well, you, you I think sew I, them I, I, together, I, but if you're talking about the cotton fields and disparate and different groups of slaves coming up with music of their own to get through the day and somehow that merging into a a true sound of the people. But I think that that goes to what uh, Mike is saying, because that they would have been exposed to uh, maybe traditional hymns through Western Christianity Mm -hmm. and then made it their own. Negro Negro spirituals were an entire genre of themselves. Uh, but yeah, you would have heard some Bach. You would have heard, yeah, the organ music. Yeah. But certainly, there are influences in a yeah. lot of church hymns. So yeah, you know, I I find music so fascinating because there are only eight notes in any scale. There are only so many things you can do with rhythm. It was 
and 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 yet when you yeah and when you bring it through a particular culture and a particular artistic ethic so many diverse things happen you know classical music and blues music and rock music and country music they all sound very different but they're all working with the same fairly small set of tools i think it's just incredible in western yeah, music I, yes and and then you hear some other cultures and, and pieces and, and the atonality that goes to it to our ears and it seems right. like oh my god that's not the pentatonic scale that we're used to listening to and it's, yeah. it's off it's off but yeah it's it's just mother's milk to us isn't it we know a four chord progression and how it goes together we know the the frets of the of the guitar and what sounds right and what doesn't so that that's that's fascinating to me a lot of, a lot of modern composers and by, i'm talking about modern as the actual uh era yeah. um used a lot a lot of dissonance and, and atonality um and did some really interesting things as well but but yeah eastern music is a very different animal than western and uh, i don't know i did i i'm not a musicologist by any stretch i'm not a particularly good musician but i just find the whole thing very just really fascinating well that's 99.9 we can appreciate it we can all be the salieri's right appreciating genius and uh, and that's that. I'm not even a Salieri, but I know a good thing when I hear it. <laughs> and uh, and Rod Cooter's stylings or creations for this for this film are, are just outstanding. Did the, the uh, duel absent the the high stakes and and the actual comp- competition it reminded me a little bit too of the dueling banjo sequence from oh, Deliverance? Very oh yeah. yeah, very much. Oh so. yeah, yeah. That's funny. Beth and I were talking about doing oh, Deliverance today. We didn't yeah. piece that together, yeah. did we? Because <laughs> they start off, you know, echoing each other, and then they move into playing together. Yeah. So the film ends with them back on the road. They they are transported out of the the out of the hellish realm back to the road, mm-hmm. and now they are uh, walking north, making plans. And Willie and Willie wants to go to Chicago. And he'll take Lightning Boy with him, but then they got to go their separate ways. Do you want to say Dinah Girl after you say Lightning Boy? <laughs> I don't, I, actually. I, 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 okay. <laughs> That's me. Uh, you know, it's funny. After I w- watched it the second time, I finally caught that, you know, he said, we're going our separate ways when we get to Chicago. I know why. I know. Well, um, I do know that there was a test audience and there was a, an alt ending. Or this was the alt ending. In the in the original ending, Willie dies. He yeah on the bus on the bus he uh, uh, he passes away. <laughs> Test audience was not happy about that. They wanted Willie back, and so we get a I think a very satisfying ending. I'm glad he doesn't die. I thought it was a good ending. I didn't know there was another uh, another option actually, yeah. but yeah, that makes sense. Apparently, there's quite a few deleted scenes. Yeah, that a, was my only complaint that there, it felt like there were I, I could have done with some more scenes. It was very I, yeah, cut. I, yeah. I, I am somewhat unhappy that there has not yet been a disc release with. Uh, no kidding. Features. No kidding. I was looking up something and, and yes, they celebrated the 35th anniversary. What do we know? 37th? I don't know. And nobody has yet released uh, those deleted scenes or extra footage. Come on. Give me deleted scenes or co- and a commentary or, or whatever. But yeah. I'd love a director's cut because that was about yeah. that was my only complaint. Ironically, is that it felt like a it's a short film. Like those songs. 
Yeah, yeah it so- felt like a film or one of those songs that was trimmed up for, you know, AM or FM radio play. Yes, the, the single, the single <laughs> cut. Like the like, I feel like there could have been more and that it would have made it an even better film. Beth, I would like to hear a bit more about what it was like to see this movie for the first time after having disregarded it for so long. And may I also say I, I envy you the opportunity to see it for the first time. <laughs> Wow, um, that tells me you really love this film. Oh, yes, he does. I do. Uh, who, what'd she say? I said, oh, yes, he does. Okay. <laughs> I hope you do, um, too, for your sake. Okay. It filled, it filled me with a lot of, on one level, nostalgia. It reminds me of some people that are very dear to me. Um, reminds me of our friend Neil, mm. who... Uh, plays guitar himself. He's a very good guitarist, but there's also within our own culture, I think, of friends, an appreciation for the blues. Um, Bill yep. is probably the first person that really turned me on to the blues through his love of the Yardbirds, of uh, Clapton, yep. Beck, of uh, um, Zeppelin. Yeah. Zeppelin. I think that was the entry point for a lot of people of our era. And so we all have that appreciation. And one of us actually went to school and lived in uh, uh, New Orleans for a while. So that there's that influence too, that musical uh, culture. <laughs> and so, yeah, it reminds me of people that I care a lot about. And then it also reminds me of an era in my life that was also, um, uh, you know, sort of happy, nostalgic feeling about it. But the film itself, okay, it sent me down. It's like I got obsessed. I'm not kidding with uh, cigar box guitars, and I am going to make one. I need to make one. She will one. too. I'm telling you. I already was messing around with a bo- uh, diddly bow. Yeah. Didn't know. Play that a little bit for us, like you <laughs> no, were. Before. No. Please. Because all I had, come on. All I had was a do one strum, a, or I'm not going to I give can't. up. I can't. It sounds like a bass. But I like it. Have you ever made a diddly bow there, Michael? I have not. Uh, YouTube is a wonderful place. Um, <laughs> I can't believe you made one and you're not going to give a little performance. No, I'm going to do one strum, but I, I, okay. it's really hard with a uh, picture hanging wire to get it tight <laughs> enough to actually get a tone. It's, a, it's amazing. Um, there's actually – I'm going to get Michael into this. The, there's, there's a place called Sea Giddy Crafts, and you can – there's a whole culture out there. Of cigar box oh guitar God, players, and it's words. just waiting for you, Michael. Wow, I don't have to look into this. Oh yeah, you're gonna go down that rabbit hole. Wait, hold on. There we go. Wait. Wait. Yeah, that's that's picture wire. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna. So is is the is the resonator actually a cigar box? The resonator is actually the lid of the cigar box. Okay. You can do things like put a uh, paint can lid through the center, and that can act as a resonator. You can also use springs. You know, there's some springs that you use to uh, maybe hang a plate with. Okay. One of those on one side of your paint can lid, and then maybe get a bigger spring. Just go down to your local local hardware store, just junk lying in your junk drawer. (laughs) There's some channels um, on YouTube that are amazing, and the sound that they can get <laughs> is absolutely incredible. And 
they're three string guitars and some of them are two string and actually some are four. And, uh, yeah, it's just, um, it's really amazing. That's not, yeah. Send me links. I, I am curious. Oh, I am going to send you links, buddy. I, I wanted to talk about the other stuff though. We were talking about the, um, the stuff that you don't want to talk about, Sam, but also I'd no love to uh, <laughs> talk a little bit about the, the folklore associated with this movie. And, you know, it's been described as a, as a Faustian bargain. Yeah. I'm not sure how well that, how consistent that is though, because there's an entire mythos around the deal with the devil and the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the connection with blues that I don't know if it's dependent on Faust or not. I, I think there can, it can be a, you know, six degrees of separation type thing, <laughs> but add to that the extreme trauma of systemic slavery. And, mm-hmm. and where that's coming from and some of the, uh, the lyrics that are involved and some of the feelings that are involved that, that have no words. I, I think blues is, it's, is a thing unto itself. Yeah. I think there are more, there's more connection than, than we realize or than most people realize between these various strands. So Hell think hands. about, think about the, the concept of the devil's music. It yeah. was blues, then it was rock and roll. Yeah. Then it was heavy metal. There's a through line through all of that because it is all related and one evolves out of the other over, over time. And we have um, a very robust tradition of devil related songs in, in blues in particular. The, the book uh, Beyond the Crossroads by Adam Gussow, which is one of my uh, go-tos for uh, for this type of uh, of material. He has an appendix at the end of that book yeah. listing devil songs in blues, and it goes on for five or six pages of table. Uh, uh, you know, there are tables. There's probably a hundred or 150 songs yeah. all together in that. It was not a small piece of the blues, but it you know it certainly didn't stop as things evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susie Quattro put out an album about five years ago called The Devil in Me. And I didn't know that, she was still doing things. She is. Wow. She is. And, and, that, and, that, and there's, that's the title song. There is a song on that album on that theme. And it's all through rock music and not even the, the very theatrical Satanism of the hair metal era like Motley Crue. Yeah. But just more organically, and it's in country music too, to some extent. Yeah, um, this is this is not a it's not an idiosyncrasy of this movie or this story, or even Robert Johnson, who, other than the very opening scene, we never see, but is kind of haunts the whole movie. I thought voodoo was re- the religion uh, originally yes. um, <laughs> from, but that hoodoo is more the folk magic and more the Americanized. You're spot on. Several yeah, references. He hands before the cutting head scene. Uh, Willie hands Eugene a bag of uh, a mojo bag. Yeah, yeah. mojo mojo bag. Does he say? Which is a mojo? great yeah. symbolic thing. When he says, "I'm going to give you all the magic I, I've ever," you know, this is everything I have. This is all the magic I have, and he gives it to him, which I think is has great symbolism Mm -hmm. um beyond just sort of folk magic aspect to it but then there's also when they're leaving um and they're walking down the road that last scene he says take the music where you found it and and move it forward just like we did yeah Yeah. i love that 
a message to the artist. It's a wonderful uh, uh, sentiment. And, and I think this is something the film does is that there's a lot of talk about shortcuts, but dealing deals with the devil. But what really wins out is mentoring. Mm. Will, Willie passes on what he knows of the blues to Eugene. Uh, he passes on his mojo bag, his magic, and then he tells him, you know, keep moving on. Take it past where you found it. Now, that's a huge, huge departure from how he viewed Eugene in the beginning. He said, another white boy wanting to take our music, steal our music. Right. So he's accepted him by the end of the film. And and yeah. we can go either way with that. Like, oh, okay. Uh, we have to let the white boy win or whatever. Um, but but no, he respects him after uh, after taking some hard knocks. And well, he 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 won his soul back. <laughs> I think well, he there's that. It's that's a pretty, pretty big, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any any you know, it's not just the winning the soul back. Through every every step of the way, he realizes that Eugene's a he's a pretty good kid. You know, he yeah. stuck stuck up for him, stuck by him, believed him. And then on top of that, the cherry on top is winning the soul back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's he's all trying to learn what it is to play the blues in order to be rich and famous. It's because he loves it. Yes. And he wants yeah. to understand it. So he's worthy of it. Yeah. Yeah. He wants the song to be in it. That's all he wants. He wants the song for access. Yeah. Not necessarily for fame and wealth, and you know that it's yeah. purely artistic yeah. because he's yeah. he could have the fame and wealth at Juilliard, right? He's a prodigy. He's he's in he Juilliard, does. and uh, he already, yeah, yeah, exactly. He he he's a good musician. He uh, he doesn't have the mileage that you need to authentically play the blues, and he gains it during the course of the story and proves it during the head cutting. I don't know what the time span is supposed to be here. Beth, you're good at that. When, oh, when I don't. Think? I don't know where are we at as far as minutes go. Oh, I mean in the in the film, what is the time span? We we have. Lots of time. <laughs> <laughs> Let me be more specific for you, Beth. Totally Deference to your day. I know you had a hell day, a hellhound day. Yeah, yeah uh, like a week, <laughs> two weeks. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking maybe two weeks tops. So, so that's yeah, no, not a lot of mileage. He's just getting no. started there. <laughs> he he is. And, and you know, that's I think that's a concession to the necessity of storytelling. But we know by the end that he has what it takes to to learn. Also, I mean, he has kind of shared his his own personal life. And even though Willie kind of belittles him a little bit, I do think that Willie un- understands the emotional neglect that maybe uh eugene's experienced eugene's from a broken home he's been largely left to himself at a young age and that's not the same as enduring racism and and laws in the south but it's not nothing either it's not nothing it's what he Um, can relate to in his world eugene is not a worldly (laughs) kind of guy he's very he's very gifted but he can't have the scope that willie does he just can't if even if Eugene were uh, a young black man, he would not be able to identify with the the kind of sorrow that well uh, Willie. No, not not a young, not a twenty, you know, seventeen year or a seventeen year old, just because of the whole life experience behind it, behind that. And and it's yeah. a different era too. I mean, I know. you have shared heritage that that gives you more insight into that world. Is, is I, I'm, I'm looking at the individual Willie. Willie is uh, Jim Crow era was his youth. Yeah. 
he spent he, he actually killed a man. Mm. You know, he spent his life on the road and then he was in jail and then he now he's living the isolation of an elderly man because nobody would take see he can at least relate to that. There was nobody that would stand for me. And that was an important like, line. Yeah. There's nobody that would stand for me. So I can't even grow old and die, you know, go on parole and die in like a normal human being. I'm, I'm uh, in this nursing home for prisoners, basically. And if he doesn't get out, he's going to he, he's damned. Yeah. So at least he can relate with to Eugene on that point. You know, there's nobody. Why do you think he decides to be wheelchair bound in the beginning? When he that's can. funny because he said he wanted a what he needed it a car he needed wheels but it's they like take his Pontiac away or something <laughs> but he doesn't have a car so he can't go anywhere like with that can he I don't, <laughs> where is it wouldn't they have impounded it I guess we don't I ask don't too many know. questions I I think he uses the wheelchair just for sympathy get people to do things for him oh. or would he be put back in the pen if he were fit I don't know. Oh, yeah. Possibly Good yeah, the point. He's not Sam. like he has dementia. Yeah. Good point. My body can still do a lot of things. I love that. I do too. <laughs> about time for another woman for me. Just <laughs> Let's talk about Robert Johnson. Okay. Um Sam, do you have any particular Robert Johnson songs? Cuz I know we both been listening to the blues. <laughs> yeah, just the Crossroads one. At the crossroads one. Um, no. Let's see. Oh, shoot. Why'd you ask me that? Now I have to look up something. No, I didn't. I was I didn't listening know. to the soundtrack, and then uh, I, I did look at the thing you posted in Facebook. It was a, a whole catalog of Robert Johnson's music, right? Yes, there, there is. Yeah. Well, at first I played some R.L. Burnside. Yeah. Because that, I, I just love that. Just love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Robert Johnson wrote uh, Sweet Home Chicago, by the way, which is in the Blues Brothers oh, movie. That's right. All right. Here's a million dollar question for all of you. Why? Why was Chicago such a pull? Why from Mississippi up to the Windy City? I think because it was another uh, really fertile blues scene in that era. It certainly became a fertile jazz scene. Yeah. Well, I know Chicago blues is a, is a huge thing, but it's freaking cold up there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I just wonder why why that particular city? I guess the why not New York? Why not LA? Why well, why Chicago? But that's right up geographically. It's sort of just right up the middle of the country. That's true. The the highway system. Yeah, and it, it was a blues town uh, more so than New York, and certainly more so than anywhere in California. Well, I understand why the Mississippi Delta would be would be a cultural center. Yeah, there's the heart of of racism, slavery, and all of it. But Chicago is like sort of the hub to the Midwest and the West. All right, that makes sense. I'll take Great. that one. I will. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm looking up a, a map. Did of you ever the read United. On the Road? Yes, I did. Jack Kerouac. Jack Kerouac. Yep. Okay. Read it again. Oh hell no! Hell no! I read, read that again, stream of consciousness bullshit when I was 22, and I'm not going I love back. That book. No. So my uh, my uh, research in real time tells me that Chicago became a blues center because Muddy Waters went there. Oh, okay. there you go. There you go. And um, in 1943, joined a uh, an established band, developed a distinctive style of blues music, and then other artists uh, came along, including John Lee Hooker. And so uh, a whole scene developed there because Muddy Waters went there to start with. Okay. Now that's something I can I can hold on to and understand. 
And I uh, did not know that until just a second. Ditto. So thank you for enlightening us, all of us. I know there's some blues aficionado out there that's, that's called out. Yeah, there, there are probably blues aficionados out there who are saying, well, these idiots, please shut up. Oh, my God. They just stumbled on this movie, and they're trying to talk about the blues. Oh, God. But, <laughs> okay. But no. But if you look at a map of the country, well, let me look Mississippi goes right up through Tennessee, Kentucky, and Illinois. It's just yeah. boom, boom, boom. Map of the <laughs> I'm in the Midwest, folks, here, so I know. The geography and the rails and the uh, interstate highway system had nothing to do with it. I'm just saying it's cold up there. So. <laughs> I, I, I not well, pick Miami. I would love to see a map of the Blues Trail. Uh, there's a Blues Trail in Mississippi. I'm leaving tomorrow. <laughs> Wait, I want to come. Uh, Michael, I was going to ask you. With red um, velvet. Do you have any favorite uh, Robert Johnson songs? I mostly know the the ones we were mentioning. Uh, Sweet Home Chicago uh, was a favorite before I knew it was Robert Johnson. He also has uh, something called the Walk-In Blues. Uh, it's one of the 29 songs that he recorded, yeah. Yeah. which has a, a fun uh, a fun little riff. Uh, I believe I'll Dust My Broom is good. Yes. Um, oh, yes, I do know that one. Uh, yep. I like Malted Milk. That was fun. Yeah. I like that song. Do you think that song is about uh, detoxing? It might be. At, at first, I'm like, okay, is this song about sex? And I don't. I listened to it again, and I was like, oh, oh, he's got spooks around his bed, his doorknobs moving, and the malted milk, <laughs> malt being you know part of hard liquor and beer. Maybe the malted milk is to sort of ease the craving of the flavor. I think you might. I think you might be right. Yeah. So basically, you're saying the blues are also sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it always does. The other one is uh, walking with the devil. I like that one. I, I love the Being guitar the playing blues. on what I've heard, Beth and and Michael and Linda. I I love the guitar, and I was telling Beth earlier that the register doesn't resonate. I haven't heard enough of it. I think of Robert Johnson. I I need to get used to that higher register because I'm used to those lower vocals. Yeah, Muddy waters, of course, that deep, deep. Mm-hmm. And John Lee Hooker. You're, you're right, though. Uh, Michael had said that it's not something you can like listen to like right off the bat. You have to kind of acclimate your ears to yeah. it. And I, I can see that. And it is weird because I was listening again today. I was trying to school my ears, <laughs> but I can. It's so weird. I can hear a little bit of Robert Plant. I can hear where. His the influence is is there in that style of rock and roll, definitely. Um, especially is like he yeah. gets really high and like I can hear Robert Plant going, you know, yeah, doing yeah. that. I I think I think the bands and the Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones in particular, and probably Cream uh, because of Eric Clapton, oh, yeah. yeah, were were really heavily influenced by. The blues from the, the 20s and 30s, more more so than uh, than bands later in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, one of his songs is kind-hearted <laughs> woman blues, you know, covered by everybody: mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, George Thorogood, Johnny Winter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking of when the levee breaks too, and Led Zeppelin, Mississippi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You mentioned George Thorogood, and I, I want to say that George Thorogood and Robert Cray, I think, had hits. In you know the top twenty or the the top forty, right around this era, right eighty six yeah. maybe yeah. eighty five eighty six. So there was sort of a, a 
popular resurgence of the blues sound. Well, there there was, and the torch is being passed, which is what Crossroads is is about uh, to large to an extent. I have a question. Do you think Crossroads could be remade today? Yeah. Yeah. Would it lose its charm if we roughened it up to today's language? I don't know, but I think that it would definitely uh, manage to dig into the blues. It, yeah, if they if they did it well, it could be done. It would uh, it would take a lot of care. It's a matter of age, not era. I, I would say the Crossroads movie that we have from 1986 was a product of its era. Yeah. Because of what was going on both in musical culture with the resurgence of blues yes. and what was going on with regard to racism uh, in the 80s and what was happening in the South. I mentioned Michael Donald earlier. Yeah. Uh, well, being also the Atlanta kids that were being killed. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think it, I don't know if a remake today would resonate in the same way, but I would not rule it out depending on how it was written and casted. If they redid it, the Ralph Macchio character would be black and would be somebody who had not experienced all this firsthand. You know, it would be that same level of interest but not experience in what this all meant. I would go for not even don't even do a remake, do something sort of loosely based on this this universe. Yeah. So that that this music can sort of be reintroduced to another generation, exactly. so that they can appreciate it and and love it. Absolutely. What if, what if they did it like Cobra Kai and did a series about Eugene Martone in his fifties? <laughs> I know that that would. I would just love to to hear some you know new some of the current blues artists. I would love. Yeah, that. for sure. Yeah. Like I said I, I've been. Uh, binging on Stevie Ray Vaughan lately just because it's been a long time since I really paid him any attention and yeah, yeah he was good. He died way too young too. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, it's so odd. I've been binging on classical music and in the blues. Yeah, we went from tar <laughs> to crossroads and now we're pulled everywhere. But I, I've been binging on both and not hating life. No. <laughs> music is essential. Music is life. What else is a genre but adapting to an environment? I like that, Michael. Music is when when it when it's authentic, it is completely a product of the culture that develops it, and mm-hmm. yep. it is always going to draw on the past and take it beyond where you found it. And yeah, try to find something new. You could say the same about film genre. Absolutely. Yep. Yes, yeah. Definitely. Yep. Art is art. It all works the same way. Well, Michael and Linda, thank you so much for for giving us your time and your expertise and those wonderful insights. Thank you so much for for bringing Crossroads to our attention and letting us go down that rabbit hole. That's really been a pleasure, and it's been a pleasure having you on. I cannot tell you how happy I am that you both enjoyed it, and it has been a blast being on the show. We would love, definitely love to have you again. So save up some of those ideas and send them in. And uh, anyone listening, if you would like to come on, and present your film, your favorite film. You can, or you have a suggestion for us, you can send us in our DMs on Instagram, put pod, P-U-D-D-P-O-D, or celluloid pudding, P-U-D-D-N, on Twitter, and celluloidpudding at gmail.com. You can contact us at any of those. We also have our link tree up there. You can check that out. 
if you need any help with some audio files, I recommend um, we're an affiliate for Loudness FM. So you can go to our link tree and you get three free hours a month. And it's great in a pinch if you need to clean up some audio files. And you can also subscribe to their service if you want, or you can just purchase the hours that you need. But highly recommend it if you are a novice podcaster and you need a little help with your audio and you need it on the quick. They're a great service. That's loudnessfm.com. And uh, we also have our tip jar up there. If you want to give us a little coin for our efforts, we would appreciate that. Right, Sam? We don't know. Yes. <laughs> Just say yes, yes. to the nice people know. listening. <laughs> we- <laughs> This has been great, guys, and and I yeah. I just had so much fun this week. I did too. This was the this best home. homework ever, and it was wanted, wasn't it, Sam? We wanted. We needed this. that. We oh needed my god, break. we needed that. We needed that. And I'm never air. doing that much work for the Oscars again. Screw yeah. that. Never doing it again. Oh, fucking gold statue just gave me a just ulcer. stupid. The Oscars are stupid. <laughs> I like the Baptist. That was much needed. But it was nice to relax into a film and just enjoy it. And I think this was one movie that really uh, did a pretty good job for the 80s. It oh, yeah. Did. It was miraculous for the 80s to be that <laughs> self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 1986 was the year I graduated college and started real life. So I kind of had a Eugene Martone journey of my own during oh. that time. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. I mean, I but hope I, it was wonderful. <laughs> but I love that there is this alertness about the film, an awareness, and it's not hyper-emotionalized. It's it's just, hey, this is where this things is are at. I bet this film inspired many to pick up the guitar and also to delve into that genre. So, wonderful, wonderful listeners. I, I hope you enjoyed this episode with wonderful, wonderful if you're an Xer, you might remember your parents watching that man. I'm not going to say who it is. Write us and we'll write you back. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for all you do. Be kind to one another. Read something new. See something different. Good night. <laughs>